one of my favorite people of all time coming up this week on In Goal Radio, the podcast presented by The Hockey Shop, thehockeyshop.com, source for Sports Langley, Darren Millard with Kevin Woodley and the returning David Hutchison back from his assignment. Today, we are going to discuss the Sense Arena feature interview with Rick Knickel. All things goaltending. It's just a long-winded, great commentary of goaltending and uh, where the goaltending position has come uh, from the past. And uh, he's a hockey lifer, so looking forward to that. A uh, really cool guy. And uh, we're going to get into a lot when it comes to the gear segment with uh, the knee pads and how to wear them specifically is a really cool uh, idea as uh, as Woodley has been spending a lot of time over at the hockey shop. It's my favorite place to be, except here with you. When you said that you're you're gonna be talking with one of your favorite people there, and I just assumed that that was gonna be me. So, hey, speaking of favorite people, I was with you on this trip to the hockey shop. I touch was over. It was great. We got lots of good video. Evidently, we do better things when Hutch is around uh, to film the hockey shop videos. We get more creative because I've actually had NHL goalies tell me that they've seen the one we did recently all over their social where the Bauer customizer and they think literally had an NHL goalie tell me how hilarious it is when Cam's just mindlessly typing on the... So people are seeing them. Um, I guess that's credit to the cameraman and the multiple angles. So we got to get you over here more, Hutch, for those. I'll be back at the hockey shop. Speaking of customizers, I will be back at the hockey shop this week to film the CCM EPLEX 6 customizer because that launches not long after this podcast launches on Tuesday, April 4th, you will be able to customize your CCM EPLEX 6. And much like our recent hit on the new Bauer Hyperlite 2, as soon as you can customize it, you can also order it. And not a lot of people really understand that, um, customizer is more than just time to kill a weekend making pads look pretty. It actually means you can order it. And what better place to order it, as we illustrated with the Bauer launch, and we will with the CCM launch, than with the people that actually understand it. People that have the pads in their hands, that understand how the new knee fits. Is it going to fit higher or lower than other models uh, with the changes? What size should I order? What strapping is custom? What is stock? What, what options do I have? Cam and his crew at the Hockey Shop, thehockeyshop.com, will make sure that you order what you need and get what you want when that order shows up. Because there's nothing worse. You can fill out that form, do all your ordering. What happens, if, what happens if a stiffer boot or a softer boot has changed the way the knee stack sits relative to your last set? Do you need to go up a size, down a size? These are the types of questions you need to have answered before you place an order for thousands of dollars of equipment. So the customizer is great. It's an exciting time. Design your gear. But before you order it, make sure you talk to Cam and his crew at the Hockey Shop to make sure you get what you need and what you want. Get it right at thehockeyshop.com. Is Jack Campbell using the customizer or the, the Hockey Shop right now? Because he, he seems to be testing out all kinds of gear. New Bauer glove the other night after a mid-season switch to Bauer or to Brian's from Vaughn. Brian's pads, blocker, glove. And I'm told Bauer connects skates in the locker room and on the ice so far for practice only, not in games. Um, there is a guy who appears to be a goalie geek at heart. He is trying it all out, trying to find something he likes. Look pretty good. Wearing that new Bauer glove. I'm I'm told it's a mock. It was skinned Hyperlite 2, but someone said it was a mock closure. I uh, haven't had a chance to check in with that with my people inside that room, but 
at the end of the day, it's a shuddy. I think it stays. Nice shout out too. Yeah, it, but interesting that it's the the second in season gear change uh, of the year. Hutch, sure is. There aren't a lot of guys that would have the courage to do that. Do you think he's going to stick, or does this make him feel like uh, making a change along the way is not a problem? There really are sort of two kinds of guys, aren't there? The ones who want it absolutely dialed in the same way, the same fit, the same feel all season long, even career long. We know some guys won't make changes. And then there's other people who just say, I can play in anything, or the guys that are just looking for that next little fix. I think it's kind of refreshing for all us beer leaguers yeah. who's willing to pull something new out, isn't it? I, that's I kind agree of th- with you. I don't think that there's anything really wrong no, with it. No, the only, the only thing that would make it better is if Woody talked to those guys in the locker room and found out that he's using a warm-up stick as well. Oh, I'm on that. I'm absolutely on that now. Listen, I think I think he's such a gearhead. You got to get Jack to join you at the hockey shop for one of these film sessions because he could probably give you the rundown. We, should, we have to do that because he does spend some time out here in the offseason, still comes out to see Dusty Emu, um, who was his coach, obviously, with the Los Angeles Kings uh, when he was in that organization. So, yeah, I think we got to make that happen. Listen, I, I'm all for this. My beer league team. Because obviously we test a lot of equipment. Got a new set of E-Flex 6 sitting here right now, right on the eve of playoffs. New CCM E-Flex 6 chest protector that I broke out in our last game of the regular season, our last few games of the regular season. They get nervous. Uh-oh. Woody's got new gear. He comes in talking about his new gear. He's got a built-in excuse tonight, right? I think they're a little worried that I'm going to pull out new gear right right for game one of the playoffs. I, I, after watching, after watching Jack Campbell, why wouldn't I? You will. Do you think surely that chesty's got to be the biggest change though, Woody? All the stuff you've tried recently, what's the what's the toughest change for you to pull out for one game? It, it would normally be a chest protector or pants, just because of the stiffness of new pants. There's a break-in required, I, I find for pants. Um, I got to be honest, that CCM Eflex Six chest protector was not a big adjustment. I was surprised at how ready to go out of the box it was, and the size, the way it sort of fills profile-wise. Remember, I'm a guy who said he would never leave his premiere. Like it was like when they changed the grooves on golf wedges and I went and bought multiple sets of of uh, Cleveland wedges with the old illegal grooves for more spin. I still have a set that I haven't broken out in the golf course yet. I Don't anybody ever bet with Kevin on the golf course because he's cheating. Well, I mean, if you've seen my swing, you should bet like crazy because it's the ugliest thing in the world. <laughs> it's Eddie Lack, Jim Furyk. note to Eddie Lack, I know you have the video of that swing, Eddie. If you ever show it publicly, you're dead. Um, uh, I might have so, one. Listen, I may switch, honestly, Eflex 6 chest protector. And so I'm, I was surprised because you're right, Hutch. Normally, and Jack evidently switched chest protectors this year as well. And to me, that's a bigger thing than pads. Glove is pretty big, but it's bigger than pads for the most part because it's such a personal fit thing. Um, so I will say, yeah, I'm loving the Eflex 6 chest protector. Can't wait to show that to the rest of the world as, when it hits the public. Um, so light. That's been the feedback. We've got it out tested with multiple guys and, and how light it is. And how airy it is has been uh, been the early positive feedback. But I digress. Um, to me, that would be the biggest change. And Jack Campbell's made one of those too. Hey, gear tip. I remember Mike Vaughn telling us when we were down there visiting one time, whether it's the new chesty or it's the new pants, stick them in the dryer. He said inside a pillowcase. I don't know when the last time was he made a chest protector that fits in a pillowcase. Yeah. <laughs> but stick stick it in the dryer on fluff, you know, not on heat. And just let it bang around in there for a little while to to work it in. Good idea, especially with pants, I think. Oh, there'd be some serious banging with this E-Flex 6 one because the back piece is actually hard, yeah, hard, that plastic hard plastic. Piece, yeah. So anyways, can't wait to show that to the world. People are like, E-Flex 6 chest protector. What the hell is he talking about? 
We haven't seen this yet. Yeah. Mm. Ooh. Tease. Somebody's been, got the toy. It's been in both. It's been in both uh, in goal offices, hasn't it? It has. Had to ship it overseas to Woody. Yeah. One uh, question on the Campbell switching. Do you think the coaches are aware or care that he's switched equipment mid-season? I think the goalie coach probably had. Yes, a, the goalie coach. Okay. Yeah, for sure. Like the, but the, but the, I was going to say the goalie coach probably had a voice in the original switch. Yeah. I mean, I was surprised he switched because he was such he like he I think Jack in some ways identified himself as a goaltender style wise in relationship to those super soft connected Vaughn pads he used to wear. The reality was, though, that that thigh rise was so short and soft that pucks were just creeping through like you could count them every year, like five, six, seven, eight goals that would go in through that five hole specifically because of it. So something had to change there. And so the rest of the coaching staff, that's a good question. I have to ask whether whether they're made aware, whether they recognize it in game. And I would guess, depending on the results, whether they care. Just popped into my head. I'm going to send a couple of questions over there uh, to those guys and find out if they even know that that switching has taken place. Uh, we have a new looking set of gear from Devin Levi from what we saw for the last couple of years as he makes his professional debut with the Buffalo Sabres. Uh, what do you think of the skinning, uh, Hutch, and the performance by Devin Levi? Uh, the skinning is beautiful. i am told you before, I've off, always been a huge Buffalo Sabres fan, graduate of the Buffalo Sabres Hockey School. Thank you very much. Rick Knickel, I was wondering, listening to the interview, oh, yeah. today's feature interview, was he there? Because he mentioned a whole bunch of players uh, who were at the camp when I was there. So that was a fun little throwback. Uh, yeah, definitely it was uh, required viewing for us in this house to see Devin Levi uh, make his debut for the Sabres. And it was it was fantastic. On the one hand, it was in the beginning of the game, it was good on them for locking it down. They've got the young guy in there making his debut. So they made life real easy for him for the first half of the game and, and uh, good on them for that. But then he had to step up huge in the third period. Uh, got to see the efficiency of his game. Got to see the athleticism of his game. It really got to see the whole thing. And it was uh, fantastic to see him get his his win. And I loved that when Skinner scored the overtime goal, he immediately turned around, pointed at Levi, and skated right to him. Um, that was just a really cool celebration. You know what I loved? Hearing him talk about it afterwards. The media asked him, and actually, I have the clip, so we're going to play it. Did you have a favorite save of the night, especially when Fox is coming down? You're wiggling the glove in anticipation. Was there any moment that kind of made you realize the gravity of what you're doing? I think the third period was my favorite part of the night. You know, it's, it, they, they get a goal and then the power play, and, you know, it's a 2-2 game, and what are you going to do to, to give your team a chance to win, you know? That's when the pressure's on the end of the game, and that's that's that. Those are the moments I love. You know, I was I was just having fun out there. I wanted I wanted some one timers on that power play. I wanted them to find the seam so and, and test me. You know, I, I I feel ready, so I just wanted to be tested tonight, um, and I'm excited excited moving forward. What are you, you saying to yourself when you see Artemi Panarin stepping up on a loose puck right in the middle of the slot? Oh, I love it. There's nothing else I'd rather. Um, you know, that's why I'm there. I'm there to stop the puck. You know, if I didn't want that to happen, I think there'd be something wrong. So it's it's my job. So I just I just love what I do. And um, it's, you know, no other guy that I'd want in the slot with me one-on-one. So. What I love about that is they're asked about the big moments in the third period when he was under fire and the way he 
this you're not going to see it on the podcast you see the smile if you go go find the clip we'll post it on our social media because the smile on his face talking about facing Panarin in the slot welcoming those opportunities not just accepting them and dealing with them but but wanting them embracing those grade a chances in key moments of a tight game in your first time in the NHL not being worried about getting blitzed in the third period but actually wanting it to happen and it reminded me so much of stuff we've heard from Pete Fry about you know welcoming uh a penalty kill situation in a tight game preparing yourself mentally by saying you want this to happen you want to have to face a breakaway because it helps you prepare for it we heard it in the se- in the seven keys to Dylan Ferguson's NHL debut being a success that was one of the keys that's up at ingolmag.com eight keys pardon me uh it's up at ingolmag.com where Pete Fry walked us through those elements based on his experience with Dylan in that NHL debut that was one of them and you really hear it come out in that clip from Devin Levi I like the fact that he works on breakaways in the warm-up, like that he goes through those reps. That that, that was that was neat to see. I, not everybody does that, but I feel like it happens more and more. Henrik Lundqvist, baby, remember Lundqvist, mm-hmm. that in, yeah. inside out, goal line out, goaltender, and yet at the end of every sort of pregame warm-up would be a series of breakaways to let him sort of get his timing on the flow and the feel, and that was something he added as his career went on. I love it. Awesome stuff as the uh, evolution of the Buffalo Sabres continues. And from a guy making his professional debut to an old guy trying to get back in, what what was the deal with the video that I saw of Curtis Joseph walking down the hall at Scotiabank Arena with, with his hockey bag over his shoulder? Some scuttlebutt that he was the e-bug. Certainly saw that online. The Leafs issued or through reporters have said that he was not the official e-bug. Like that's that's the company line, but which leaves us guessing why was he hauling his gear down there? Maybe there's a skate after the game. I don't know. But boy, what do we think? What if he was? Okay, so he officially he wasn't. What if he was? I don't know when the last time he played goal because he's he's a very accomplished defenseman when he does play hockey these days i I know i know a few nhl teams that might use them on the back end instead of as an (laughs) e-bug can you imagine pulling a guy that's been retired for 10 years and putting him in as the e-bug do you do you guys have a name from the past that you'd love to say bernie perron in the in the winter classic the one the one year was awesome just to see him make one save and he was gone but that 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 was cool but uh, a name that you'd love to see back out there again well, I mean, how could you not want to see Dominic Hasek? I have a funny feeling the guy'd still be really good too. Um, Ken Dryden probably would struggle to get onto the ice at his age right now, but I think I would love to see him out there as well. Like it, it, the more guys you can bring back and involve in the game, the better. It would be every bit as exciting as it is to see the local Zamboni driver get into a game as well. Like I'm just all for it. The one thing I would say is it drives me nuts. Um, when the e-bug can't actually sit on the bench if it happens halfway through the game, right? Like they're supposed to just sort of stay in their gear in the dressing room or something. It's only if they begin the game as the backup that they're allowed on the bench. Because why not? Why not have them there so we can enjoy that experience and they can enjoy it as well? But well, do uh, you know, just to clarify, you know why that is? He hasn't signed the contract. Uh, I don't. Well, he hasn't signed the contract, and there's no guarantee he's going to end up playing for that team because if two injuries happen to the other team, uh, he, he has to okay, go over. Enough. 
he has to go over and play for that team. Well, let's have a little bench. Have, have a little stool between the benches yeah. then. Th- they can wear one of those, yeah. you know, they can wear one of those jerseys. Like you've seen the parents who have a kid on both teams yeah. and they sew the jersey up. Let's put that on the on the e-bug and put them right in the middle then. Don't they? Do it. As soon as, as soon as one might come into action, Darren, don't they have to call the second one on the list to come to the rink? I, I don't know whether, but they may not have that guy there right. in time. But I, th- I do believe they have to have a second guy on the list that they can call and is supposed to be in short order. The rules have changed so much over the years. I, yeah. and, and one of the rules, speaking of that, was it wasn't that long ago. I don't know what the rules are now, but it wasn't that long ago that Curtis Joseph wouldn't have been an option because he played in the National Hockey League. And I don't think that's the case anymore because if I remember correctly, uh, Andrew Raycroft ended up being an e-bug one night this year, right out of the Nesson Bruins broadcast. It was this year or last mm-hmm. year where he was had to get somebody to go get his gear from home. So, um, yeah, it's uh, the rules change all the time when it comes to e-bugs. I can't figure it out. Still, sort of enjoy the stories where they get in, and there's still a little part of me that like we're a five billion dollar industry. How the hell have we not figured out how not to have some random guy end up between the? Oh, bikes? it's the best. No, don't ever change that, Woody. No. It's the best thing. Uh, the one rule that Urbe. needs to change, though, is they got to make it possible for Darren Millard to be the e-bug one night. We I want to see Archer's Urbe in there. Ooh, Way with ahead. The, with oh, the, with the original gear. Yes. With the original pads. Well, yeah. you know he still got it. He, he'd be sewing them on the way to the rink, filling another hole. What about you, Woody? Any, any names jumping out at you? No, not really. Um, it's a tough one. Um, I, I'd probably go with Hashik just because like, there was such a thinking man's element to the way he played. And it was so unique that I think it would probably screw up some shooters to see that style. Like I, I you know what, actually any of the old standups, like, like Hashik wasn't a standup per se, but like you've seen it. Kelly Rudy. We've all seen it. If, if you play at beer league, you've seen it. Cause we're sort of in a generation where, well, I started late, but you guys played the old way, but now you play the new way. But there are still guys out there in beer league that play the old way. And you've, I, I got one on a, a skate I play in where everyone is really high. Well, the shooters are really high. And I said everyone. I'm there, so clearly not everyone. But the shooters all play junior college or, in a lot of cases, pro right up to the NHL. And there's a guy who played college in goal at the other end on a lot of nights who still, like, he just, he'll come out of the crease Nabokov style outside of the post, just square up on guys on sharp angles, and they just consistently pump pucks into his chest because they're expecting him to drop into a reverse VH and put it by their ear like like they do to me all the time. I'm telling you, some like some guys would be flummoxed, just as JT Miller was earlier this season when Craig Anderson went two pads standing straight up Nabokov style uh, on a sharp angle chance and kicked the puck out past where JT intended the rebound to go. Like, I think some of those old styles would probably, it would take them a little while to figure it out. It would screw some guys up for sure. They'd be coming down the wing looking for a butterfly drop and putting it right in a guy's chest because he didn't drop in on the butterfly. I wonder how long it would take for them to figure out, hey, maybe we should throw it into his feet because he's too old to get down in a butterfly. <laughs> uh, Ilya Brizgalov. I'll give him a, a nod just for the post game. <laughs> just yeah, I was going to say, even if he doesn't play, just interview him. Yeah. Just, just purely uh, for that, uh, a championship awarded. A uh, congratulations, Woody, to the Toronto Six. Isabel Cup, PHF champions, Carly Jackson, Elaine Chuli, who will be on the In Goal Radio podcast together. We're doing the tandem, like we do with the World Juniors. We're doing the tandem. Um, a little later this week, should be up 
for our next, somewhere in our next two episodes. Got a few guests lined up, but hoping to get them on the podcast here real soon. Excited they're making the time because they have been, you know, speaking of that Leafs game, as much as the story at the end became Curtis Joseph after Matt Murray got hurt, um, nice celebration for them. They had uh, Izzy, as they call the Isabel Cup, in the square before the game, at the game, celebrating at that Leafs game. It was really cool to see. Uh, the city has really embraced that championship. Congratulations to them on winning it. Uh, they played down at Mullet Arena in the finals. And just, um, yeah, can't wait to catch up with them and talk all things goaltending with Carly Jackson and Elaine Chuli. Today's feature interview is Rick Knickel. Uh, the feature interview brought to you by Sense Arena. This is In Gold Radio, the podcast uh, presented by The Hockey Shop, thehockeyshop.com, source for sports Langley, uh, the gear segment dealing with not exactly a specific manufacturer, but how to wear a piece of equipment with the knee pads. I think we should put an asterisk, as you'll hear. This is how to wear knee pads according to camp. There may have been some disagreement from Woody. We may have to post our own video afterwards. I'm with Cam on this. Really do it, Cam. I, I, I'm with totally uh, Cam on this. Okay, you can be with Cam on this. Let's listen, and then afterwards, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you who we celebrated already in the show. Who's not with Cam on this? Welcome back to the Hockey Shop Source of Sports. I'm Cam. He's Kevin. I'm thrilled to be playing dress up again this week. Classic. Today. We're going to talk about how to keep those knee pads from sliding down and ending up at your shins and not protecting your knees where they should be. So, a couple different ways we can do this, a couple different products. Kevin is already modeling a little bit for us. So, to start, Kevin is wearing the Vaughn padded V9. We showed them off last week. They're we on did. sale. We Super did. padded when you drop. They got a little pad to make you taller. So, currently, you see... The sock attachments. So at a basic, 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 this is something I always recommend, socks over top of the knee pads. So I've chosen a tighter sock for Kevin here to keep it up. So what this will do is add a little bit of constriction to the knee pad and help to stop it from shifting and rotating out of place. Personally speaking, I like the tighter sock when I'm playing because it does that. Some guys find it's a little bit too constrictive. But Cam, what if you're not an absolute tryhard like you and don't want to wear socks over your knee pads? You have other options, which I am getting to for sure. Tryhard. Hey, if you're not trying hard, is it your NHL? Probably not. So, second piece that he's wearing here. So Kevin has actually a Vaughn garter belt on. So this garter belt conveniently has clips on it, which actually clip and tab into the tabs on the knee pad. So a lot of knee pads will have these nylon loops on the top of it. This will allow you to attach the garter belt up top. Now, many of the knee pads have different styles of those nylon loops or slightly different attachments. That's why we carry different garter belts. I also have this convenient Bauer garter belt as well that actually has the sock attachments and a front singular tab for the knee pads as well. Now, you can make a system like this work with this by just running a string through the middle here and through here and tabbing it on. So that gives you the ability to kind of make both systems work. Bauer has just one singular nylon loop, which ironically lines up with this, but you can, again, you can just run one skate lace through here, tie a knot and tab that in. And that's another way to help hold them up as well. Kevin, I seem to have blown your mind here for a second. Oh, like just, just like, my head is spinning. I'm good. Cam? I take my CCM Pro knee pads 
I do up the Velcro, I take a piece of sock tape and go, <laughs> done. Do we really need all this? You can't. So a couple of reasons why I'm not a huge fan of sock tape. So sock tape is constricting and cutting basically as tight as possible in one specific area. So if that slips, moves, sweat, comes undone, anything like that, where's your knee pad going? Down by your shin. So this is why these other items exist because sock tape doesn't work for everybody. It might work for some. Works for me. I don't have like you guys. But it's not a be all end all. You got calves like thighs, so it's a trouble for you. I didn't skip calf day. So if you have any questions about this, any other ideas or suggestions that I might have for keeping your knee pads up, you can give me a call at 604-589-8299 or 1-800-567-7790. If you wanted to check out some of the products that we talked about today, you can just go to thehockeyshop.com. You don't need www in there, as I'm told by Hutch. Check them all out. Any questions, Kevin? I don't. I'm going to have to re-watch this later to figure out all your different unique little solutions. Oh, yeah. The other thing you can do other than sock tape, what about these uh, Don't forget about the Wineric Cant as well. Better that you said it, not me. can never pronounce it. Goalie Specific does have actually a sticky, almost neoprene-type material right at the knee. That can also help to hold up the knee pad. This doesn't uh, seem we, like we much. We tried it. It actually works quite well. But it can do quite a bit for holding that knee pad up. Also comes with those convenient sock tabs we were talking about earlier, about putting socks over top of your knee pads. In case you're a tryhard, or good enough to actually play on a team where you have to wear Or you'd like socks. to keep your not pads fresh and not ripped apart by the Velcro of the knee pads. That's something I've ever had to worry about. This is the longest outro ever. Do you have sock tape? All right, who, who doesn't agree with Cam? You see the pictures of Devon Levi after his uh, oh yeah, first the tape. Start? Yep, yeah, Did a little sock tape around the che- around the knee pads. No need for fancy fancy socks. Anything that inhibits movement. I wouldn't even do it that way either. I would do one little at the bottom underneath so they can't fall down. That's all. Ever. That's all I do. Socks over one strip around the bottom. I don't even need. Simple, don't even simple, need simple. socks over. Actually, you know, I was going to ask: Do goalies have to wear socks in the NHL? Because Levi didn't appear to be. Like I didn't. I, I didn't see team socks. They used to. My understanding was that there was a rule in the NHL for a while because I actually remember thinking that Carey Price wasn't wearing socks one time and then he'd actually gone to a, a shorter version. So he was, they, they barely came down below his knee, which I think maybe was a heat thing. I'm not sure. We'd have to ask him at some point. Um, but then I, I agree, Kevin, I've seen a bunch of guys recently that aren't wearing socks. So either the rule's been changed or they're just getting away with it. Marty Berdur wore sweats that looked like socks when he played. So that was the way he got uh, around that, if it was a rule. Uh, a reason to wear socks is because it's a little more cut-proof and, and helps you uh, battle that. So there's there's that safety aspect. Well, listen, like like I, I don't know how cut-proof NHL socks are these days because since they went away from the old knit, um, we've had more cuts. Uh, if you're not wearing, like, I would suggest if you're a goalie, you should probably have cut-proof socks under, on underneath that anyways or cut-proof material on your leggings. The joggers is funny because we've all done it, right? Come on, we've all worn jogging. I wore jogging pants underneath, not on purpose, but because I had a, and I was, I was tough because it was a nice fresh set of Lulu joggers. Got to the rink, realized I didn't have my undergarments and it's like, do I go bare-legged or do I wear my nice Lulu joggers? Wore the nice Lulu We've all jogger. had that conversation with ourselves. Yes, we yep. have.
Well, not Hutch. Hutch, does, <laughs> Hutch thinks I'm Hutch thinks I'm a little too fancy with a little jogger. You know, I, I had the even more embarrassing one. I arrived at the rink to spare for a team I'd never been with before. Realized I didn't have my long underwear, didn't have any socks, and I had to walk into a room of guys I'd never met and said, "Who's got some long underwear I can borrow?" And little well i mean it pulled it off i got them but i mean asking to borrow somebody's underwear is just a little bit weird and i won't tell the story but there's an nhl goaltender who had to borrow mine one time so that was also kind of strange okay so wow i can top that one walk in really yeah, walk into the rink and realized i left my goalie cup at home hmm. oh and you played in a player's can yep oh i don't think i would do that hey he, fastest hands he had all all year Making sure he wasn't getting hit in that area. hundred percent. Every other game in my life, I've tried to be centered on the puck. This was basically, yeah. as we'll hear from Rick Knickel, I was basically off angle, inviting them to shoot anywhere but the middle of the net. I I have to admit, you win, Woody. The the garter belt with the with the knee pads was a game changer. I love it. It keeps them together. I don't uh, ever forget one. Uh, it's it's always perfectly aligned. I don't know why you wouldn't. Uh, wouldn't go there why you do any other setup so hold on this is this is because you like it when you're wearing it or method. you just don't like to lose it both both it's it's the all-in-one scenario i'm, I'm i it's go like through a couple of different to have on his mittens growing up yeah ex- very very similar very similar and then you just pull the socks up over top and it's it's go time i it's convenient and it's effective you know Why what? wouldn't you go with that? This argument would be a lot more compelling if you weren't wearing glasses that were missing one arm and there's crooked on your face as you talk to well, us. If right he now. had if he had the old man string on his glasses, he'd know where the arm is. The, I know where the arm is. It just broke in, in the in the middle of uh the night in my hotel in San Jose. I'm like, what is going on here? It was uh, a but, really but compelling the, argument until I looked up and saw you with your glasses crooked across your face. And I don't put the knee pads on the garter belt uh, every day. They they they're already attached. I just do it up, boom, boom. It's it's good to go. You're on Team Cam. This whole tape thing, yeah. Cam's brilliant. One strip, I don't know why easy. you guys go against Cam. Because it's fun. Silly, silly, silly. <laughs> because it's fun. Well, I, I can actually buy into that uh, a little bit. But uh, interesting how there's so many with that piece of equipment. There's so many different approaches to it, uh, to, to how you're going to wear that. And I've seen different guys with the with the knee pad outside the socks uh, or not even socks, which I'm with Cam. They, the Velcro and ripping things up, it's it, it has an effect there. I wear them outside of my undergarments and don't wear socks, so I don't know. I mean, what the hell? I'm a beer leaguer, so mm-hmm. I'm just going to refer to Devin Levi because he does the same. Well, Knickle didn't have any knee pads when he played. The Sensorina, Sensorina VR feature interview with longtime professional goaltender uh, went to a Memorial Cup with the, I still call it the greatest junior team, Canadian Hockey League team ever, uh, with the Brandon Weekings that year that they lost the Memorial Cup final to Peterborough in 1979. Brad McCrimmon played every minute of the game that went into overtime, except for when he took a two-minute penalty. That's staggering. Uh, Bob well, was the uh, the guy that uh, scored the winning goal in that one. Yeah, you guys are looking at me like, can you believe that? He Never played every like minute that. of the Memorial Cup final that went into overtime, except when he took a two-minute penalty. Okay, so like... That's got to be a... Well, of course it's a record because nobody's... That's insane. That is nuts. Easy to track ice time. <laughs> Probably the only t- way they did track ice time back then. <laughs> now listen, as we set this up and before we let Hutch tell us about Sensorina, 
you, this is can't miss because yeah. this interview is full of stories like that one. This is story time with Rick Nickel. He should have his own freaking podcast just to tell stories from his career, including how a team wanting him instead of a then unknown Patrick Waugh allowed Waugh to debut with the Sherbrooke Canadians instead of being traded to the Saginaw Generals in the IHL. Like, there are so many crazy stories in this interview. Folks, like, stick around. Can't miss it. And within those stories, some serious lessons about goaltending as well. Hutch, Sensorina, Sensorina VR, what's up? You know, as we talk old school goaltending, as we talk Woody trying to survive out there with a player's cup on, and giving up a side of the net so that you can make a glove save, whether it's for style or to save your upper body back in the day. That got me thinking all these things that you hear about on the podcast with us crazy three old guys talking, you might not want to try them at your next practice on the ice, Mm. but you could put sense arena on right now, head into your living room or wherever you like to pull it out to do some training, try a little bit of old school. You know, they, update the software all the time put cool new stuff in like for example it is beautiful and sunny out here but i could step onto an outdoor rink right now in sense arena and train i think bob and his team over at sense arena maybe needs to get some old school whether it's jofa or cooper or something some gear you can put on when you're in sense arena and really get a feel for what it used to be like back in the day But more than just going back in the day, you can have the most modern training. As you are now evolving into your spring season or your summer training, let's add Sense Arena to your training program because you can face shots from NHL shooters now. You can face power plays. You can be involved in penalty kills. You can do all sorts of different drills to train your skills as a goaltender, including a huge suite of neurocognitive drills as well. It's really off the ice the best bang for your buck for training to help you become a better goaltender when next season rolls around whether we're talking tryouts in the spring or the summer or training camp in the fall add sense arena to your training program just like devin levi does one of the biggest users of sense arena he's one of the guys we know that sits on the couch and just watches pucks go by in sense arena to work on his tracking He's one of the biggest users. It's got him to the NHL. It's going to help you become a better goaltender for sure. Today, if you go to sensarena.com, they've got that deal on still. Free shipping, free trial, free sleeves, those things that connect the Oculus controllers to your goalie gloves. And if you use the code IGM50, you'll get a little bit more off as well. Go try Sensarena. You can be old school, but you don't have to have the palm stingers, the shoulder bruises the no pain yeah no none none of that pain no pain except it's so realistic i remember my kid maddie got hit in the head in sense arena and he actually had to take the headset off and he was a little bit shook it was kind of funny listen this is a perfect segue to rick and nickel because one of the things we talk about is the evolution of equipment and how when he went and make sure maddie listens to this one hutch when he arrived for her and made his first whl team he was so happy that he got to go rooting through the equipment room and found Glenn Hanlon's old pads. And then he found a mask, fiberglass, a mask, fitted yeah. for Glenn Hanlon and decided that looked pretty cool and he wanted to try that too instead of... And then 
The coach noticed he was flinching and insisted he stay down and on top of some tip drill shots. And Rick showed me the scar over his left eye last time we were in the press box. Uh, it's a good thing he has eyebrows to cover it because it is a nasty gash. And so that is just one of many stories, many stories. Wayne Gretzky, Keith Gretzky, Patrick Waugh, um, a career that almost ended at age 29 with retirement, but was revitalized and ended up in the National Hockey League for the first time at age 32. Um, had me near tears talking about his dad and getting to see him make that trip. Uh, just this thing, Storytime with Rick Knickle needs to be its own podcast. It's a beautiful interview. It's over an hour, and there are very good lessons within it, uh, both for goaltenders and in some cases, what not to do. Um, I joke with Rick about what life would have been like if he had modern equipment when he was young. Uh, but as we talked about after the podcast ended, maybe life with a sports psychologist might have helped him a little bit more. There are lots of great lessons about what you should focus on and Rick will be the first to admit because he wasn't always focusing on the right things. But man, what a career he had despite that. I'm not sure that uh, taking Glenn Hanlon's mask was the brightest thing to do, but he was smart enough not to take his gloves, knowing that Hanlon was a uh, uh, lefty uh, in that. Uh, it's the fastest conversation you will hear on In Goal Radio, the podcast. This one will fly by with the great storyteller that is Rick Nickel, brought to you by Sensorina, Sensorina VR. Beyond excited to welcome to the In Goal Radio podcast for the first time. Uh, long overdue, after several years of great conversations in the press box at Rogers Arena, always love when I run into Rick Knickel, longtime professional goaltender right up to the National Hockey League level at the LA Kings, also a professional scout uh, for close to two decades in the NHL, currently does some goalie development with a company he runs here in the Vancouver area called Steel Hockey, as well as a new... I guess Team 33, a new scouting program that you're developing. We'll get into that a little bit. But first of all, just all these years of chatting in the press box always leave me with a smile on my face. We finally get you on the Ingle Radio podcast. Rick, how are you, buddy? I'm doing really well, Kevin. Yeah, it's it's about time. You know, I got a lot of friends that have these podcasts and stuff, and I don't go out and solicit myself to get out there on these shows, but I love talking the business and you know, I'm a lifer and uh, yeah, getting to talk to you at the Rogers Arena and get your insight and understand like, you know, where, where people come from, you know, where, where their backgrounds start from. And I met a lot of people on the way and, you know, and, and it's interesting that, you know, you treat people, I guess, you know, the way you want to be treated. And that's, that's how I look at it, that everybody comes a different route in this business. And yeah, it's, uh, it's awesome to be on your show. Well, yours, your route involved... 18 seasons of professional hockey. We said we mentioned a couple with the Kings, 17 different teams. I got one, two, three, four different leagues. So you you got around, you experienced at a time when there wasn't just sort of an NHL AHL hierarchy. There were all these different leagues, the IHL, time with the Detroit Vipers, uh the Phoenix Roadrunners, uh the AHL, even the EHL. Like there were so many more options back then and it was so much less structured. Um, but let's, let's rewind even more. How did Rick Knickel become a goaltender? This is where I love to start. Yeah. Well, I grew up in a family of hockey, right? So I got five boys and one girl in our family. My dad was a coach. Um, I was the second youngest. A couple of my older brothers tried goaltending, but I never really paid attention to it. Uh, I wasn't that big growing up. You know, I could play, I get good hockey sense and I could understand the game. And, 
I really, um, I don't know exactly how I, I got into the net. I think it was probably, I'll show you, older brothers, that I'm better than you were. And I think that was my, my thing, that you're always trying to prove yourself to your older brothers. And I was really quick, and I had good eye-hand eye coordination. And once I got in the net, it's like anything. I've seen this as I scouted and I, as I run my, my companies, that I believe you're born a goalie. I really do. I mean, the good ones are born goalies and other ones are trying to be a goalie, right? And I think it, I eat it, I sleep it, right? And, and I, I just gravitated to it when I was about nine years old. And when I was nine, my dad was coaching the peewee team and my other brothers were, I think, 11 and 12. So I started out in squirt, which was with Adam, and I was really doing really well. And my dad figured, okay, can I get three boys on the same team so I have to make one trip? You know, I don't have to keep going to the rink all the time, right? You know, I got four, five boys, and they're all playing at different levels. And he brought me up to that team, and I played with a 12-year-old, and I was just as good as him. And that, I believe, is what started me on my NHL pro career to try to aspire to be that. You always have to be above the other players, right, as a goalie, be a step ahead. And, you know, we call it anticipation and, and, and seeing things, right? And I did at a young age. And I remember that. And I would talk to my dad a lot about it now. And he's 86 years old and he's sharp. And we would have drives together, right? You know, go to the games after the game, just me and him. And I remember asking him, you know, how good was I when I was, you know, 10, 11 years old? I played in the Quebec Pee Wee tournament for three years. I played in a lot of big tournaments that really, I think, prepared me for what I actually became. And it was... It was something that I look at that um, when I was nine or 10 years old, I believe that you could skate. Obviously, you have to be able to skate. And, and you know, we're talking 70, 71. There's no goalie coaches. There's no – I love the way the goalies play now compared to the way I played back in the day. But I was a smaller guy, so you can imagine. I was probably trying to be athletic and flamboyant, which I could be. Okay, so, that, I mean, the game has changed massively, right? We're talking about 50 years. But – some of the things you just mentioned, and I'm sure you see this as a scout, that innate ability to anticipate, to read, to process the game, um, to skate, especially as the get now in the last couple of years, it becomes East, West, and so dynamic. They're back. Like these things matter. Maybe they always did. Did you, were the, when you moved from playing to scouting, was that one of the things, especially when you were looking at goalies? And I know you did more than just goalies. You were, you know, the head scout in Arizona looking at every part of the, of the game. But when you looked at goalies, how did you how did you identify that innate ability to see, to read, to process? And, and that's even interesting because I played the games for so long in that position, and I tell other guys, I say, listen, I'm not the you know the guru on goalie evaluating scouting. I understand what I'm looking at, but if I'm not around that goalie every day, if not if I'm not around him and understand where his thought process, his dedication, his focus is. It's just his understanding of position and keep on developing. Yeah, I'm going to see him as a scout. What am I going to see a guy how many times? You know, seven, you know, maybe. Um, other guys you like, you want to see a little bit more. But it is a difficult position to, to identify and process to see who's going to make it and who's not. Because I know how long it takes. Let's say a player is drafted at 18 and he's 22, 23 years old. We have to project four or five years he hasn't made it by then okay you know they move on guys develop at different stages in their career goaltending what is it seven eight years 
for me, <laughs> 13. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, you look at everybody's development. Why did mine go my way? Well, I was too good, too young, and I didn't work at my craft well enough. Didn't have goalie coaches. Didn't have – my dad pushed me, but not in a real hard way, but in a good way. But I – it's all about your self-awareness and, and your self, uh, you know, being someone that you want to be. No one else can get you to do the training. No one else can get you to work on things. But I think a lot of it is too. It's like, hey, if it isn't, uh, you know, isn't broken, you know, we have to fix it. Interesting you say that. So was that part of your, I mean, you're in Brandon with the Wheat Kings. I was going to say, like, you grew up in this big family. Your dad's a big part, you know, a big part of your life. You're, you're growing up in Nova Scotia. Um, spent a lot of time, I think, in the Ontario area. But now all of a sudden you're 16, 17 years old. And you're on the other side of the country by yourself playing junior hockey with the Brandon Wheat Kings. That process. What's that like? I mean, I can't compare it to what it's like today, but we didn't have the internet. We didn't have FaceTime. We didn't have all these things to keep you connected to family. How tough was that? Mine was interesting because um, a friend of mine, I grew up in Nova Scotia in an Air Force base. So he lived right around the corner from me. So we grew up together and he was a big, tough guy, defenseman. He went back out to Brandon because he had lived out in Manitoba in Portage as a 14, 13-year-old. So he went back out there, went through their system, played in Brandon. So Glenn Hanlon was playing. So he was the weekend goalie for three years. So they never really looked for a backup because he played 70 games a year, right? This is the old era, right? Back in the NHL, Eddie Johnson playing every game, Glenn Hall playing every game. So when his turn, when he graduated and got drafted, my, I had already gone through my process. I'm 16, playing at home in Tier 2. We had no major junior in the Maritimes back in the day. So my closest one would be, do I know anybody in Quebec? Well, I didn't. Well, somebody knew me, but they didn't really uh, scout me that much. It was a guy that I really knew, you know, fairly well since uh, at a young age. And he scouted my tier two team. And my brother was a five foot seven centerman. I'm six feet. Okay. All my brothers are five, seven. I'm six feet, five, 11. Thank you. No wonder you became a goalie. I mean, even back then, right? The Mike Vernons of our day, right? They're five, eight goalies. I played in that era, right? So I wouldn't have been out of the norm. So the guy scouted, and he really never talked to us, and he scouted for the Sherbrooke Beavers. And that's where I should have ended up. If he had done his homework right, I was 16, had three more years of junior. He had our ages backwards. They had me as the 19-year-old and had my brother as a 17-year-old. So he never talked to my brother because he's a five foot seven, 17-year-old. Good players, our captain. So I ended up contacting my buddy. I go to the Western Hockey League trials in Brandon. Never tried out for a team in my life, really, because I'm an Air Force kid. Everybody knows you. You grew up the, the ranks. So I go out there. There's 20 goalies trying out. 20 goalies. So I'm going from Nova Scotia to Brandon. I'm not going home. There's no way. That's just me, right? I'm out there. I'm going to make this team no matter what. And I've always been that way. When you push me up against the wall, my game comes out. And I've always known that, right? And maybe it hurts me in, a, in some ways of my career. I wasn't complacent, but I was very consistent. But if I needed to bring it on a big game where maybe the circumstances weren't in my favor, I would be able to do it. So I go to Brandon. Every, every phone call, I'd say to my dad, the list is on the wall, right? We're down to 15. We're down to 10. And I knew what goalies that I had to beat out. There's about two or three other guys that were my age, 17 looking to groom us to play three years of junior. So I ended up not making the team because they wanted a 19-year-old goalie to play there because they had a really good team. Like they were going to win the championship. Them and New West were in that mix in the late 70s. And like I ran into a really good situation there, right? I mean, 
I just didn't have to screw up. I just had to get my feet wet, hold my own. And at the end of the day, I became the best goalie in the league because of good teams help you, that your confidence gets better and you start to believe, right? So at the end of the day, I played tier two in Brandon with the Travelers. And then uh, the goalie left. He had some uh, personal issues <laughs> we, we won't get into. He left and the, and the ball was given to me for the last 40 games of the year. And I played every game for the last 40 games, I believe, around there. I didn't have a backup. This is crazy, Kevin. We Come had on. a backup, a local guy that would back up. He was a college guy. He was 20 years old. On the road, we would pick up the odd guy. That was a local guy that we went ahead and I don't know why they, they did that. They didn't have anybody to back me up, really. But not on a consistent basis my first year. So basically, you guys, that, you guys e-bugged. You basically e-bugged for a year. Pretty much e-bugged, yeah. Pretty much e-bugged, right? And we had the one guy at home Crazy. who was a college guy. And we loved him, right? We loved him. At the end of the year, I think like we had everything sewed up. I was a top goalie. No worries about me not getting the goalie trophy and all that kind of stuff and win the championship. And so we said, hey, hey, put him in for a minute. You know, he'd be able to tell his grandkids, you know, play in the Western Hockey League. <laughs> I mean, this guy was an e-bug type of goalie, but maybe he not a beer league guy, but he was whatever. And uh, yeah, that started my Western Hockey League career when I get out there because now I go from the, the small pond now to the big fish, you know, the big pond where I'm out with the big guys and I'm playing with the best team in Canada, right? You got Brian Propp and Brad McCrimmon and, you know, we had a lot of guys off that team who went on to play in the NHL and, and it was really an experience that it, it opened my eyes of, you know, how good I am to begin with, you know, where do I sit in this pecking order? I'm not now in Nova Scotia in a secluded area because back then nobody, nobody left and was did anything from the Maritimes that anybody knew about. Three guys did it at the same time, and all three were goalies. Roly Melanson, Sean McKenzie, and myself. We're all from Halifax, Dartmouth. And, or, or Sorry, Roly from Moncton. But I knew Sean McKenzie, who went on to play in Oshawa, I believe, in Colorado draft pick or New Jersey. So there we are. We got goalies leaving, right? Because it's it's a different scenario. You don't have to be one of 13. If you're good enough, you're one of two. You make the team, right? And you stay. And so I think the goalie part of it that I knew a lot of guys in, that I played against that I watched. I go, wow, there's no way I'm going to be able to even get by junior A out of this area because these guys aren't even moving on. You know, so... When I got out to Brandon, it was really a good eye-opener for me that I had stepped in and took over from Glenn Hanlon, which was, you know, he was one of the best goalies in Canada at that time. There are so many little threads I want to pull on, not the least of which is Roly Melanson, who's one of my favorites. But I want to ask you about that getting up, like, back against the wall mentality uh, yeah. and and bringing out your best. Obviously, you said you'd, it may not have been a good thing at the time. Looking back, do you think there would have been ways, like if you had recognized it a little earlier or were there stages in your career where you recognized how to get to that mindset? Maybe even in, in times when you were in a comfortable situation, again, you didn't want to use the word complacent, but maybe the situation was comfortable. Were you able, or did you ever try to find ways to manufacture that feeling of my back's against the wall because that's when I'm at my best? Well, th there's the, the, the kicker. I was so comfortable at a young age. And it really hurt me as I got, well, the only time that I had to put my, wow, the, nobody knows me here, was my training camp in Brand. And I was never a good training camp goalie. I was never a good practice goalie, so to speak, right? I didn't really care for practice a lot. I liked when I had buddies that were into playing games, right, in practice afterwards and that type of stuff. 
which I was very lucky to have a lot of good teammates over my career. I played a lot of teams. But bringing the, your, your game when you really need to bring your game, it's, it's something that I've always been self-taught. I've always been self-motivated. I was very stubborn, which hurts you. I was really stubborn, really stubborn. Like, I know everything, right? I know because I was so good at a young age. And for me, if, if I never went through any bumps in the road, and I didn't, I never played on bad teams growing up. So if you play on bad teams, and I know, I mean, I know the history of some of my goalie partners, right? Just take Kelly Rooney, for example, right? You know, getting cut from midget teams, you know, getting, you know, not being someone that he's always had to scratch and claw and fight and battle. Well, what was he as an NHL goalie and a pro goalie? He battled like anybody. Like he was a real battling type of goalie. And he'd probably be the first to tell you that wasn't the smoothest, right? Wasn't the most athletic, right? But it's just how we go about stopping the puck. You know, back in our era, it's just whatever you want to do. There's no set goalie coaches and, you know, hey, this is what everybody's doing now and how we can do things. But for me, I was really, for myself, I think a lot of it was fear. Fear of failure. Feel, feel, feeling that I wasn't going to be good enough and what could I do in my life? You know, I and mean, this was something I was good at and I knew I was really good at it. You know, so and. And I'm, I'm really shocked sometimes that my career actually ended up where it ended up because I have a lot of, you know, friends that, that would come and see me in practice and, you know, knew me as a 12 year old, 13 year old. And it's kind of like, Oh, wow. Look where you, and people come out of the woodwork now because we have Facebook and Twitter and people that I've never, I knew them because they were my brother's friends and they're 40, 50 years ago, but yeah, it's interesting the, the career that I've had that how I've been able to deal with a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff that allows you to, to stay on top of things. Okay, so you said you didn't like practice. And I think I kind of understand why, based on a conversation we had a few nights ago in the press box, we were talking about equipment and masks. And yeah. the stories you told me about facing shots in practice and, and flinching, like pulling away from pucks, not staying over top of it, made a lot of sense. When you started to tell me about life as a goalie back then with, you know, fiberglass masks, walk, walk us through the, like, I was going to ask you to walk us through the evolution of your game, but so much of the evolution of the position is about the evolution of the equipment. So you're, oh. what you grew up playing in and how it changed over the years. Absolutely. Right. Okay. I'm trying to think, okay. Yeah. When I'm 10 years old, what did I get for Christmas? 11 years old. Jacques Plante mask. You know, there was one that were the gray ones, right? Had right down the middle. And it kind of like went here. So the puck would deflect off, right? Not really much padding underneath it, right? I don't believe I wore that. I don't, I'm not sure if it was allowed. I didn't have as many rules as he do now, but I don't think I really remember wearing it. I don't think I liked it. I think the, old, the eye holes were too small. I couldn't really see down, right? So then he, it evolves to where I, when I saw the uh, 72 uh, Summit Series, Love Trechak's mask. Love that mask, right? The Jofa, right? The combination Jofa mask, right? So I wore one of those when I was about 14. And I like that. Then he evolved to where we had the combination. We have the helmet and then the cage, right? So then I go to Brandon. Now everybody's wearing the molded mask, right? You want a little personality. <laughs> you know, I see Jimmy Rutherford had the, the little wings with the red wings, right? And that was all he had, a white mask with little red wings over his eyes. And I was a red wing fan, right? So I love Jimmy Rutherford. And so we're, um, I'm playing in Brandon and, uh, I'm going through the equipment stuff. Right. So I get, oh, Glenn Hanlon's old pads. I get to wear those. 
And there's this mask. There's the mask, right? It's a molded mask. And I liked it. It fit well. It, fit, it looked like my personality type of thing. And so practices, guys like to rip pucks high. They like to get it under the bar, right? Snap it. Curves start to come into play a little bit more. Your sticks are getting a little bit better. Right? We're talking 77, 78. So the coach comes up to me, and I'm doing really well. I'm playing really well. He says, I've been noticing you've been flinching on a few shots. You know, We're going to work on some point shot tip drills in front so you'll stay down on the puck. And I see your eyes, Kevin, like getting like saucers, and that's what I'm thinking too, but I'm not going to say nothing to the coach. Where, is these, where are these pucks going to be deflected to? Yeah, they're going to be deflecting up, <laughs> right? And I'm supposed to be getting down. My head's going to be down. Yeah, sure enough. About two minutes into it, I got deflected the puck right into my eye. Cut my eye. I lifted my mask up. Blood starts coming out. I figured, okay, yeah. It was lucky that it was in a good spot. It was right in the corner of my eye. Didn't didn't damage my eye or anything. But that's one of the reasons why. I mean, we were not well protected. You know, here's a good story for you. I get drafted. I go to training camp. I'm sitting next to Don Edwards. Okay, Donnie Edwards. And I just got all my new brown equipment. Just signed my contract, right? So I get outfitted with everything. Is that the so first I'm, time? Is that the first time you had all new equipment? You mentioned like like I think it would shock much. people of this era to know that you you show up in junior and you're going through the equipment bag to get you know Glenn Hanlon's yep. old gear. Yep, yep. See what I liked? I got the the Jofa pads and stuff. So I'm standing there or getting dressed, and I I'm very shy. I don't say much. These guys just won the Vesna for the last two three years. I get into a Buffalo situation. A lot of old guys. It was an older regime. Rick Dudley, Don Luz, Craig Ramsey. Danny, Danny Gare was a young guy, but a lot of good guys really treated the young guys well. So I'm standing there getting dressed, maybe the first, second day, and I'm watching him get dressed. And he's putting on felt shoulder pads, you know, like arm pads. Like they're the old 60s, right? And chest protector. And I'm just like, come on, you know, I got to say something. Like I got to know him a little bit. He was pretty good to me. And I said, I got to ask you a question. Like I'm getting my, you know, jumbo you know stuff on my a big brown equipment on and i said how can you get in the net with that equipment and not be afraid i mean guys shoot the puck pretty good you got richard martin you got the, you know these guys can rip the shot and he goes listen kid when i get when i'm in the net and the puck hits me here i look down because i feel it <laughs> number one i felt it here and i know i have to look to that side and that's where the puck will be and I stood there for a second and I went, okay, this is a different era that I'm used to. You know, these are guys now I've played pro and are used to getting hurt and you're used to getting bruised, stay in the game, right? They don't take days off, right? They don't make the millions of dollars. They need to be there. Availability is the best ability, right? You got to be there, right? I'm hurt. So don't tell anybody. And I, I was shocked that they want to be able to move as well, right? They don't want to be constricted, but they want to feel the puck. I did not want to feel the puck. <laughs> not once. I want to feel it in my glove. That's it. I don't mind feeling it. I just don't want to feel it two days later. Thank you very much. That too. That's true. Yeah. And it's funny because I would know every time the season would start, I would look down at my arms. Yeah, they're the bruises. Yeah, they're back. Season's starting. How much do you think that, that changed? Like, like the fear factor, right? Like you talk about you had a great glove hand, right? Like you were known for your glove. You had to you know, if that fear factor is there, like you had to have a good glove. We, guys made reactive saves with their hands yep. because either they reached with their hands and caught it. If the alternative was putting your body in front of it when you weren't protected, 
that hurt. Like how much did getting gear on and at what stage of your career did you get a chest protector where you could stand in front of a slap shot and, and, and actually want to use your body as a save mechanism rather than wanting to catch everything, not because you got good hands, but because it saved you from getting beat up. Well, it's interesting because a lot of the area that you were not protected would be rated through your collarbone area. We'd have the caps on the shoulders, right? Back the, before the brown one piece. Yeah. Right? We'd have a chest protector were decent, but they wouldn't cover much collarbone. We didn't have a throat protector, right? So for me, I, I, I wasn't in fear of pucks because I got a lot of pucks and balls shot at me through my brothers right. all the time, right? And I was, and it's so interesting, funny how you're groomed. It's just amazing. I'm nine or I'm eight years old before I became a goalie. And I idolized this guy. He was a 15-year-old lefty. And I loved Roger Crozier back in the day, right? So this guy was a lefty and he was good. He was really good. He was a friend of my older brother. And he was out in the, in the backyard of a, of a school taking tennis balls and hitting me. And I went in the net and I got a hit. I got one. And I started crying. And he goes, yeah, way to go. That's it. Good stop. And I looked at him like, oh, my God. I'm getting encouragement from my idol. So there's where the fear factor, I believe, went out of my psyche was that day. And I hadn't started playing yet. So I wasn't in fear of the puck and stuff. And this is why as well, because I could get out of the way and I could catch pucks. I called dodge puck, right? You can't hit me. Get out of the, you know, because we practice so much, right? A lot of times, but I would give guys my glove side. I would give them more of my glove because I knew, go ahead, challenge me. I wasn't the greatest on the stick side, just above the pad like they do nowadays, right? We didn't butterfly like that a lot. We didn't butterfly slide back in the day. We were kick saves. We did the odd butterfly, right? I did because I was more athletic. But yeah, I, you know, using your glove and saying, go ahead and bait me. And here, you think you can beat me with your shot? But yeah, if you didn't have a good glove hand and you were a little bit skittish of a buck coming, you're going to get hurt. Because these guys like to hit you as well, right? They like to see a little bit of pain on goalies sometimes. You're, you really do think that these guys are sad. A little bit of a sadistic mind. And I can shoot a top shelf, hit the crossbar, no problem. But can I hit him in the shoulder, <laughs> you know, just to see how mad he can get? Uh, Yeah, no thanks. No thanks. Yeah. I'll, say, yeah. uh, I'll take I get enough of that in beer league warm-up and they don't shoot that hard. Um. So, I mean, your career span, you know, like we're talking about, you're talking about getting drafted by Buffalo in the late 70s. And by the end, in the IHL with the Vipers and Las Vegas Thunder and Milwaukee Admirals, you weren't to the mid-90s. So equipment would have, I'm trying to remember, like, like you talked about Butterfly and the pads you would have grown up with. Of course, there was no landing gear. There was no mechanism for that pad to actually rotate and land properly. But by the end that stuff started to exist. Were you a guy that gravitated towards the new and, and trying new things that you thought could help your game? Or like you said, there were a lot of guys that I remember even starting to cover the league in 2000 and they were still, I don't want to say stuck in their old ways because they they'd been, they'd done it for decades that way, but they had equipment that didn't do that. They, they stuck with old equipment. Like you got to be a part of one of the greatest evolutions of equipment in your playing days, but did you actually use it? Yeah, absolutely. I was not Donnie Edwards old school to, to <laughs> okay. hang on to that stuff because I, I, I was playing in, uh, I was playing in Flint, uh, Rangers farm team there, and a guy named Brian Heaton lived in just south of Detroit, so he started a goalie mask company, 
and he needed guinea pigs, right, to try his mass out. So he just, for whatever reason, he came and we hit it off and he asked me to try some of his masks. So I tried some of his masks and I modified, you know, some of the chin gear, kind of get like a football chin gear because I didn't want that to move around. Um, yeah, so he started that. And so I started using his masks and then he started into the goalie pads. He started making um, Heaton's and then good Legend. marketing. Legend. Like, right. So then he started making a marketing tool, right? Invent and said, let's go with the Bryans. And, and you know, hitting, he's, he's dip, double dipping, right? So he knows, okay, the heating thing is kind of going really well, and I'll get out another company called Bryans. And people might think it's competing against heating or whatever. No, it's the same guy, same company, same everything, right? So, yeah, the evolution of equipment, and it was mainly the pads as far as not being able to butterfly. They had no inside piece. They did a little bit, right, when I did, and I could butterfly. Good enough. We wore knee pads, big knee pads, right? Separate ones, right? Right. Because there's, on. no, there's no that the landing gear wasn't there. No. no. So we had the big knee pads. We put them underneath our socks and that could kind of help a little bit, right? But there wasn't a lot of butterfly goalies. 75, 76. Look at the NHL. Everything in the right. NHL was the minor leagues or and the, and the juniors were the same, right? So, um, I like the butterfly, right? I like to be, because I played a lot of, a lot of road hockey, a lot of mini sticks, right? So I'm on my knees, right? You're, you're in the Quebec Pee Wee tournament. You're playing mini sticks more than you're playing your games, right? It's constant mini sticks is what I remember, right? So you're always on your knees. And was I playing goal? Yeah, probably. But still, it's the evolution of equipment really, I think, dictated how you played. Right. And I like the new equipment because I wanted to be more protected as I got older. Right. I'm now, you know, 30s in the early 90s and I'm on the other side of my career. I shouldn't say that because I played in the NHL at 33. So after when I was at the Vipers and I'm 34, 35, um, the equipment I think was uh, pretty much nothing really evolving for about three or four years until I got out of it. And and it's so interesting because when I got out of it and got into scouting, you don't really pay much attention to the equipment anymore, but we would have scouts games. So I would go into the, you know, go grab Chris Mason's pads or whatever. And I'm like, wow, are these ever big? And I'm getting my feet crossed up and my knees are getting in the way of each other. It was just, I did, I had to adjust of how you have to play with this equipment. And that's the biggest adjustment. I think guys, they grew up with this equipment. They know how to play with this equipment. I don't think I could. It was just totally different. So okay, so um, steel hockey, working with young kids out at Hollyburn here in Vancouver at the rink. Do you what? Like, what do you make now? Like, when you pick up a set of Bauer pads that weigh under four pounds and they're made of this unique material, and the pucks rocket off the face, you know, on purpose, right? Longer rebounds, the way they slide, like. If if you had a set of those, if if Rick Hinnickle had a set of those growing up in Nova Scotia, how oh. how much easier would life have been, eh? Well, yeah, I mean, and you always can't go back to say how much better could I have been, right? I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's all relevant, you know. I had a pretty good run all the way up through, you know. Um, but how amazed. much easier would life have been? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. The equipment, you know, just like I look at some of these kids now, they're so much bigger to begin with. They don't need big equipment. We did. We weren't that big. We needed to cover net. Um, and the big thing for me back in my day was I wanted my pads to stay tight to my toes and not move, right? We needed to have it that way. 
where now they have that elastic band and the, the pads are moving because you have to rotate knee, get your knee down, the butterfly slide. And yeah, so nothing's almost really attached. It really feels like I like things to be together, have it all in one piece. Connected. That's just connected. That's what's just old school goalie equipment was like. Right now, there's just a lot of, you know, Velcro and different pieces and the toes aren't attached. They rubber bands like because they need it that way. And you see so many saves now being made. The guy's sliding and he's making the save with the top of his boot, <laughs> you know, because his pad is moved and it's stretched and because everything is, is, is moving away. But yeah, I love the style, the way they play now. I love the way the goalies play now. And I'm, I'm so amazed at the athleticism, uh, how big they are and how good they are. What, uh, what do you focus on when you get a young, like, especially the younger ages? Because I think Basics. You know, we talked about skating, right? Like, I see yeah, a lot of times work. guys are doing like RVH at nine years old. Like, what, what, do you, what is your focal point? Yeah, I see you shaking your head. So more about skating and movement, eh? Yeah, it's old school stuff, right? Fundamentals, hands, eyes, you know, connecting to the puck right away. Eyes, hips, hands, right? And eyes, hips, hands are turning to pucks, right? Everything's basic, straight on. That's easy, you know, be in good position, tight elbows, relax, you know, feel free to move, right? But eyes and hips and hands. And it's so gratifying to see when I preach to these kids, and I got some good kids that are 11, 12, 13 years old, that now are using their sticks when they rebound, recovery, poke it, poke, poke, poke. So it gives you that extra second to recover, to get to your space, to get to where you need to get to, right? And I'm amazed. I got a six-year-old that I teach. A six-year-old, he's unbelievable and just nonchalant, knows because he lives and sleeps it. His dad tells me this, right? Lives and sleeps it. He's just absorbing everything. And he does it. Butterfly slide in a package, square into the post. I'm like, you're six. And I don't tell him to say, hey, you know what? Hey, every year you've got to develop and get better and better and better. It doesn't mean if you're great at six, right? But I'm just amazed at how good these kids are at a young age. When you talk about edge work and skating, give me, give me a couple examples of drills that you like that, I mean, they may be super simple, but things you like to do to make sure that young kids have that foundation built in right away on the skating side. Well, I think a lot of it is, you know, I, I tell them, you stay off your outside edge. Never use your outside edge, right? Because that's a skater, right? If kids go from skating to goaltending, right? They always think they turn their skates and they have to move to the right. They have to turn their outside edge. No, we're a shuffling, T-push, mainly shuffling type of thing. But you have to have good inside edge and control, right? We're teaching kids that are young, muscle muscle strength. That's, that's something that's got to develop, right? So I have to right. take that in consideration. You know, how strong are they? If you're a good skater, being able to push well, right, and get into your stride and push. And it's only a small area, post-to-post, -post, blue paint area. But I, I see them in, in Hollyburn, especially. A lot of kids are players, and they put them in goal because they like to play goal. They want to try it, and because they have a goalie coach there, so why not take advantage of that? But I'm I'm pretty old school when I talk with kids, and I understand their styles and I understand the butterfly style because I've been a scout and I've watched enough in the last 15 years of the transition of goaltending. But edge work and being able to push and being able to understand your edges and being able to you know. Weight transfer, slight weight transfer, right? Core, slight weight transfer. And I really preach this too because some kids don't know where the weight transfer is. That's okay. I want you to lean on your right side and then go and push to your left side. Feel oh, it. okay. Now, yeah, feel it. And just now modify it. Just bring it back to now you're 
either way, right or left, core is there, I can go either way. And that's why I really pre preach, and I love that we have a, a, a Thatcher Demko here to watch as our local goalie and having one of the best goalie coaches in NHL or at wherever, in Ian Clark, that I say, did you guys watch Demko last night? Watch his little, small, little shuffle movements. He's ready to coil. He's ready to unload. So I talk to kids. I say, explosion, right? Read, react, explosion when you need to be. And that is being relaxed. Don't be so tight and tense. Diet tension is the enemy of goaltending, as Ian Clark would say. Yeah. And I, and I only do stuff that comes from my head. Like I never read any goalie coaching books. I don't, I never did all of that. Right. And I think I don't want to oversaturate my brain with what I, what I know. And I believe, and it's just really basic with what I'm teaching. Right. I'm not teaching rocket science to these kids and these kids are going to, you know, take it for what they want to take it. Right. There are some development of some kids that are really good. And you say, Hey, that kid's got a chance if he wants to be. Right. Other right. kids, okay, they're just they're they're enjoying it. I actually got a, an email from a, a lady, a mom, that wants me to come out and do private lessons with her because she's joining a, a women's league, and Love she's it. a mom of probably maybe one of the uh, the kids that maybe I teach. You know, word of mouth got around, and so yeah, so she's gonna she's gonna do that, but. I love yeah, it. it's I love it. it's it's amazing, Kevin. That uh, you know how much you're around, you know, young kids and how how good they are and how how in control they are of their ability to push. Okay, so let's let's go back to the career a little bit. Um, drafted by Buffalo, you talked about the camp with Don Edwards. Then a lot of you know, like Rochester, obviously, I recognize in the American League as as a farm team. But then mid '80s, Flint, Sherbrooke, Saginaw, Fort Wayne. Uh, as you get into the 90s, as you move around, what's what are some of the memories that come out? Like, I'm guessing there's stories. Some we probably can't tell. But lots, what are some <laughs> what are some of the what are some of the best memories of that time? Uh, and 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 how did your game develop? Well, it's interesting, right? You know, let's, I get drafted um, and I go to training camp with a team that really wasn't needing goaltending. Right. Right. Jacques Cloutier and me got drafted in the same year. We were the two best goalies in the country. We played against each other in the Memorial Cup. We fought each other in the in a Memorial Cup brawl. Hold hold on, yeah, we got a goalie fight we didn't talk about. Yeah, yeah, we had a we had a brawl in the Memorial Cup in 1979 in Three Rivers in their rink. We had a brawl and warm up. Everybody, 30 minute brawl, and I hear stories now of scouts. Okay, now. If people know Trois Rivières, it's a small little town. Picture a dirt road. Cars going either way, right? So we're talking um, May. It's a little muddy, right? So the road of scouts are sitting there. They're hearing this on the radio that there's a brawl going. And it's lasting 10 minutes, 15 minutes. I hear a lot of scouts left their cars and just went into the rink and said, I'll get my car later. Pulled it over and ran into the rink and left it there because they'd never seen anything like this before. We had a really tough team. They thought they were going to be tough at home. They, we had a brawl. So I'm, I'm sitting there going to training camp, and Jacques Cloutier is there. So I'm looking at, okay, where is my career going to go, right? And, and so Jacques got the head start on me. Uh, he gets to play in Rochester that year. I go to the East Coast League. So I go to the East Coast League, win the championship there, top goal in the league. So my career is you now I'm starting a little bit one step below. 
but it's the baby steps, right? And this is maybe what I needed, right? So I had an easy career in junior as far as, you know, playing behind a team like we, you know, that I played for. Yeah. I mean, I had eight losses, I think, in 100 games, right? And it's not very hard to, you know, mentally be be prepared and not have to go through all those downtimes, right? So go to training camps, uh, play in the American League after I played in East Coast League. Jacques gets moved up. Mike Keen is my coach. And I've never had a coach that has been really hard on, on, on me, right? I've never been a goalie that co- coaches are hard on. I'm pretty consistent. I give you a really solid effort every game. I can win games for you. But that was just his stick, right? He used goalies as his, <clears throat> as his thing, and I was his guinea pig, and I got pulled quite a bit. Which, what's to do for a goalie? My confidence level was so bad. And so I had to restart my career. So I said, you know what? I'm playing here in the American League. I'm not playing really well. I'm so-so. And so I asked them if I could go back to the IHL. I said, I went back to the IHL to rebuild my career. So that's where I was in Flint, in Saginaw. And I redid my career and uh, top goalie of the league. And then I'm playing really well. And Sherbrooke is, needs a goalie. One of the goalies got hurt. So Montreal's farm team, so Serge Savard, phones Dennis DeRogier, our coach, and says, you have a goalie down there that we could use in the American League. And I had gone through enough in the American League, and that was 26 at the time or 27. Said, yeah, yeah, I got a guy here. So they called me up. I'm playing three games in the weekend. I got first star in two out of the three. I signed a three-year deal on Monday. NHL deal. Okay, so I'm a free agent. So here we go again. My back's against the wall to get a contract. I go into Sherbrooke. I win 3-1. I go into Maine. I beat them 4-2. I got first star in both games. So they come with me, $5,000 check, signing about us on Monday. Get my money. Okay, now I start to get back into reality again. I started to come back to earth. I didn't play that well. I was really, you know, I was inconsistent at that time. And for whatever reason, I don't know why. So. They were going to send me down to the IHL. Dennis DeRoger actually initiated this. He phoned Serge Savard. This is an unbelievable story. He phoned Serge Savard and said, Serge, I need a goalie. I'm, I'm lacking a goalie. I need a goalie. I've got one, but I need another guy. He says, I know you guys have extra guy up there. And he says, okay. Serge goes, okay. I got this young kid coming out of junior. He just finished his junior career. His name's Patrick Waugh. No one knew who he was, right? Patrick had a career... In junior, of five goals against average, same as Brodeur, right? A lot of shots, a lot of no notoriety, really, right? So, and he goes, okay, I can send you Patrick Waugh, young kid, starting his pro career, or we can send you back Rick Knickel. He goes, send me back Rick Knickel. He goes, I don't know who Patrick Waugh is. Send me back the guy that I know. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I go back down to the eye, play for Dennis, who I played with. Right. So I got my career back and I started to play really well. You know, I'm 29 years old, right? Going through the gamut. As you see, I went back. I retired at 29. I went home and I was contemplating my career. So I waited until the trade deadline because I knew in February, okay, if nothing happens and I'll look and see who gets called up. And then I'll phone that team and I'll be able to maybe hook up with that team. Greg Millen gets traded from St. Louis. Daryl May gets uh, called up to St. Louis, so I go to Peoria. Yep. Okay? So 
So I drive down to Chicago, stay at Darren Pang's house. <laughs> I have not, I have not played and put on gear for two and a half months. So I sat on the couch for two and a half months, contemplating my career. What am I going to do? Am I going to get into coaching? Am I going to do whatever? And scouting wasn't a thought process at that time. So I go back down there and I'm playing for St. Louis's farm team. So I backed up the first game. I hadn't put on skates for two and a half months. Practice once. But as you know, as a goalie, right, you feel it, right? I'm back. I wasn't ready to retire. The circumstances to stay, there was no jobs. Nobody would give me a training or tryout or anything. So we lose nine to two that night at home. So we're playing in Milwaukee the next night. Coach comes to me and says, can you play tomorrow? 12 o'clock game. I said, absolutely. So guess what happens? I beat Milwaukee four to two. Stopped 40 shots, stopped the penalty shot. I was in the dressing room after, and I'm going, I'm back. Someone's got to notice, right? Sure enough, okay, so I played the next seven or eight games. We're in the playoffs, so they just told me, I said, of course, I'm on adrenaline, right? So I came back to Earth again, played three or four or so-so games. He said, no, you're going to play in the playoffs. So I'm playing in the playoffs for St. Louis's farm team. Bob Plager's around, all the, the scouts are around, right? I'm going to get a contract for sure. So I go back that summer, nothing happens. They already had their guys. As I know, you know, no room. So then I, I get a contract with Fort Wayne in the IHL. And um, that's where my career kind of, I, I had more or less decided I'm not going to get called up. I'm not going to sign an NHL contract. I'm just going to play to have fun. I'm going to go where I want to go. So I played in Fort Wayne, top goalie in the league, first all-star team. and then. Donnie Waddell gets a team in San Diego. Okay, Donnie I've known for 35, 40 years. Played with him, coached me. Gets a team on San Diego. I'm in Springfield in the American League. I get called up, right, because our team, and I don't think it was in Albany or whatever, we folded. I go to Springfield. Jimmy Roberts knew me from Buffalo. Jimmy Roberts is there, right? Okay, Whitmore's there. So we win the championship. All the young guys are there that you would know. Mark Bergevin, Terry Yake, uh, John Stevens, Todd Richards. So I hooked up with that team. We won the championship. Okay, to back up one year, the year before, I'm in San Diego playing with Sean Burke. We lose in the first round. What do you do after you lose out? Well, you're at the bar for two days straight, you know, having a good time, and then you're going home. I get a phone call from Adirondack. Nick Polano. I don't know if you know Nick Polano. Nick Polano is my first pro coach. Became uh, Detroit's uh, pro scout. Been in the business for 50 years. Outstanding man. Was very, very good to me. He phones me up. He says, listen, we're going to win the championship in in our Adirondack. We got all the young guys again. Keith Primo. All those Detroit guys went on to play for the Red Wings. He said, we get Alan Bester, but we don't have a backup that can push Alan Bester to play his best. He said, can you get here tomorrow? He said, you don't have to play. You don't have to back up. You just have to practice and be ready in case we might want to use you or might want to use you as a backup. <laughs> like, uh, here we go again, right? So I'm hung over. It's a different, said, yeah, different era, man. Wow. Different like, it's era. A, different, yeah. a different era, right? I'm a free agent. I can go wherever I want. So I get there the next day. So I come in the dressing room. I meet them in New Haven. And a couple of guys we played in are in Springfield the year before. And they said, oh, our good lucky charms here. We're going to win again. See, I've won five rings in my career. I lost a Memorial Cup and I lost a Stanley Cup. I got five rings in the minors, pro championships. 
So people started to think of me maybe as a lucky charm. I don't win. I'm not the top goalie on the team. I don't win any MVPs. But anyway, I go there, and that's where I met Barry Melrose. So we hooked up there. Okay, so we win the championship. So we're in the bar, and that's where Gabby came and played with us. Gabby came with us as a blue, a black ace. Me and Gabby were black aces. Bruce we Boudreaux. closed. Yep, Bruce Boudreaux. So that's where I'm, and Gabby, I played against Gabby for years, right? And we knew each other. And him and him and um, Barry Melrose played together in um, the WHA, I believe, in Cincinnati, right? So <laughs> we're sitting there smoking cigars. Right. And Barry says, uh, what's it going to take to get you to come and, you know, I'll get you a contract with Detroit and you could be the goalie next year here and help old Chris Osgood because he's turning pro. Right. Because people looked at me as a good older guy that wouldn't jeopardize a young guy's career, would help him, which is what I've always did. I had played with Baba Senza. I played with Beauregard. I played with all these guys that passed me by and I'm better than them in the year that I'm playing with them. And they go on to NHL because they're younger. They got contracts. And at that time, I didn't have. So Barry says, I said, it's going to cost you a lot of money. You know where I'm playing, right? San Diego. Come on. To go and play in Lake George and, you know, in Adirondack. And it's cold. And I said, I've been there, done that. I didn't want to do that anymore. Right? So I said, you know where? I, I said, anyway, I said, I'm going back there. And it didn't work out. Well, what happened that summer? Barry, Barry Mellows got hired by the Los right. Angeles Kings. So I phoned him up. And I said, Listen, how about a tryout? So we, I phoned Rogi Vachon, right? And they said, we got contracts. We just don't have any room, blah, blah, blah. I said, well, yeah, no worries. I said, you know where I'm playing. I'm 100 miles down the road. I never thought anything of it, right? I'm following it vaguely. Keith Gretzky's playing on my team. Me and Keith are tight. We're Buffalo Sabre guys, right? So I heard that Wayne was talking. When, when, when Kelly Rudy was going through ups and downs like we always all goalies go through and Wayne wasn't playing at the time I think he was hurt so they were looking around and in their head office they had Nick Beverly as a GM and they had Roy Malarker as the president okay and Rick Dudley was my guy from Buffalo we're at training camp together and I'm no duds the same as I know Donnie Waddell so these guys are running San Diego and they're talking to Rick Dudley and they're just venting Right? We're thinking of making a trade. We're thinking about trading for Darren Poopa. That's what they told Rick Dudley. And Rick Dudley told them, don't do it. I got a goalie here that's better than Darren Poopa. Why don't you give him a try? Which was me. <laughs> and they knew of me, I'm sure, right? Over a career, they would look it up or figure, you know, people knew me or whatever. I know Roy Malarker knew me. And that's how it started. And Wayne thought I was under contract. So he thought that he had to trade for me. I was, I was a free agent. And that's how I got to L.A. I mean, you work your way down the line here and as people that you know on the, the timing of everything, right? Do you think that I'm sitting at home at 33 years old that I'm going to get a chance at the National Hockey League? Not a, no way. And when it happened, I was ready. Mentally, I was ready. I wasn't ready at 22, 23 years old. If I had a chance to go up there and play and fail some games and get my feet wet, yeah, I think I would have been able to do it. I seen other guys that did it, but I put them on the pedestal too high in my own mind and where I came from. And once you get in a room, it's, you know, everybody's everybody. But I knew a lot of the guys on that team and they made it feel really comfortable. Pat Conacher, um, a couple other guys I played against in the Western Hockey League. So, you know, that's, uh, that's my 
rise to the NHL. And it's, it's really interesting how, you know, if I, if I had retired and what I had thought about it, didn't, did I really get out of the game because I wasn't good enough anymore? No, the circumstances were what they were at 29. And after 29, Kevin, I played the best that I played in my career. Okay, so I want to ask you a little bit, because one of the things you said after retirement and making decisions like going to San Diego that jumped out to me was you just wanted to play to have fun. Yep. How much yep. did letting go of all, because a lot of the other conversations as you've been talking, you're, you, you, it sounds like you're always looking at opportunities, which was the nature of the job. You had to find places to play. But when you're thinking about other things like where am I going next and what's my career doing and you're not in the moment, we know this now, right? we got sports psychologists for every goalie from yeah. a young age, right? Yeah. Staying in the moment and there's ways to do it. It sounds like when you just disconnected from results and started to play just to have fun, not a, am I guessing it's not a coincidence that that's when you rose to the level of the National Hockey League and as yeah. you said, played your yeah. best? Yeah, I didn't worry about who was watching me, right? I didn't worry about which NHL team was you know, how did I look? How did I look, right? How did I look when I, was it looking good enough to be an NHL guy? I mean, not that the style I was thinking. I was, you know, how did it, how did people perceive me when I was playing? And I, and I would have one corner of my eye wondering, how did I look in that save? And I wasn't a precise, you know, technical guy. I was a freelancer. I, I felt like I was a freelance type of goalie with structure, right? I could play that way. You know, I always say this. I'm trying to think of it. Um, um, control chaos, right? I, yeah. I had that, you know, so, but yeah, absolutely. I just felt like I'm 29 years old. It ain't going to happen, you know? And I, and I felt for my dad more than anybody, you know, the dad is always, you know, people coming up to him at the golf course. Hey, how's your son doing? He's going to make it this year. Right. Cause he, he knew John Brophy's and guys like that at his golf course and not those guys, but people would come up and talk to him all the time and ask him. And like I said, we had a really close bond. We still do. Right. It's, you know, that, that is my wanting to do it for my dad more so than me. Right. But yeah, after I let it go, it was the talent has always been there. Right. But, you know, as a goalie and a guy that's now studied this position a long time, it's not just having talent. It's not just having talent. You, you, better, be able to figure, you better be able to figure it out in your head and manage things in bad times and scrambles and chaos. And, you know, it, it's not just. Yeah, it's, it's not as easy as people might think. And I think a lot of people don't think that. But once they talk on the outside, then they get in there and go, ah, it's not as hard as. Yeah, it's 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 something that really um, I, I let it go. And, I, and I'm glad that I did because it really it fulfilled my career that I don't know what I would have thought after. You know, I retired at 29 and just wonder, you know, and it's I, got to you do, I got to I got to do it, which is really it's really gratifying to me because people recognize that too right a lot of people didn't know a minor league goalie hey, there's, there's a lot of guys but to get to play in the nhl and i was talking oh i actually saw it last night kenny holland talking about his first nhl game and i played against kenny a little bit and in, in the minors and in, in him feeling that way right this could be my only NHL game, right? Because does it feel like it's way out of my realm that I'll be able to stay here? Yeah, that's something you have to battle with. Right? Well, I was gonna, I was gonna ask you, I was gonna follow up as you're talking there with what it meant to you to get that opportunity. You go six and four with the Kings that first year. I think you've kind of already told me what did it mean? Maybe what did it mean to your dad? What did it mean to have? Do you remember the moment when you told your dad oh. you were, you were going to play in the National Hockey League? Yeah, I got a call. Well, when it happened, right? I mean, I. 
I, I was talking to Rick Dudley and, and he said, don't tell anybody, you know, it's going to happen here in the next week. And so I come out of the room and there's Keith working on a stick, you know, so I'm talking to Keith Gretzky and I, I knew I could talk to him and tell him. And, and he, he said, I know who it is. He didn't tell me which team it was. He just told me there's an NHL team looking at you and wanting to probably sign you and bring you up halfway through a season. And, you know, so it's, you're going through all the, the stuff that's not going to happen, right? Because there's a lot of stuff that's been negative in my career that I've always looked at to say, yeah, that's gonna, it's going to hit the wall. It's not going to happen. There's no way because I think they're going to get somebody that's played in the league, let alone me of a guy like that. But once I got there and I backed up the first game in Minnesota and we won 10-5. So Kelly Rudy goes and goes, uh, I'll find out, I'll ask Barry who's playing tomorrow. So Kelly goes in and comes back to me and says, you're playing tomorrow in Chicago. And I know Chicago is a very, very difficult place to play. Yeah. Very difficult. Let alone getting up the stairs. I've heard these. I've never been. Very, very small stairs for a goalie to be able to walk and it's steep. Right. And I got a lot going on. Right. So about a week before, I had food poisoning. So I really wasn't 100%. Had a lot of nerves, a lot of anxiety. Not nervous about how I'm going to play, really, in my mind. I think I'll get comfortable as I get going. But you never know. I could give up the first shot. And then you'll know you're going to get into one of those games. Oh, I've been there, right? Now I'm at the top level. I don't want that to happen. But when I got to play my first game, and I played really, really well, even though I let in seven. I was the best seven-goal game I had in my life. And a lot of the other team recognized that because I played with Brian Noonan. I played against Eddie Belfort. And so a lot of these guys, Dirk Graham, uh, Brent Sutter, I think. Yeah, Brent Sutter. So in the paper the next day, they gave me a lot of good kudos. A lot of good kudos. of We knew this guy before. We knew we weren't going up against somebody that we didn't know about. We never faced him, maybe. But people in our dressing room told us about him. Of course, they're going to talk. Who is this guy? Yeah. You know, so I got there and I was lost my first game. So now I'm really sick. Like I'm, I'm really, really sick the next day. I'm dehydrated. I mean, I I went through a lot that night. I got interviewed by Dave Hodge in my hotel room. Um, My brother wrote a letter to Dave Hodge before I got to the national hockey. This is unbelievable karma. My brother's always been a big advocate of mine. He wrote a letter to Dave Hodge and, and told Dave Hodge that you should interview my brother for what he has done in his career. I had played like 600 games or something like that and umpteen teams and whatever, right? And a week later, I signed with the Los Angeles Kings and I did the interview with Dave Hodge. He had my brother's letter and he said this. I didn't know my brother wrote the letter. He said, yeah, we got a letter from your brother, Dale. I went, what? He goes, yeah, we got a letter from your brother, Dale. He wrote us a letter about you. And and now how things have come right around to us that you actually did sign an NHL contract. So anyway, to continue on, I got a chance to rest. We went to Washington. They said, get your own room, take care of yourself, get some chicken soup and all that stuff, right? Because I still had the bug inside me. And I had to play a really, really hard game. Yeah. And I was spent. I was done. And so... I'm watching the game and I, I never ever wished any of my, my, my goalie partners to play bad and have bad games. I want myself to be the one that I will outplay him and I will take the ball 
and be better than him. Not that he has to play bad. That makes me look good. Right. I hated, I hated that. And so we're playing in Washington. We got beat seven to two. So they said, you're going to be playing in Tampa Bay. In Tampa Bay at the time, they didn't have their big rink yet. They were still building it. So they played in a 7,000 seat arena. My mom and dad live 30 minutes from Tampa Bay. They live in Orlando or in Lakeland in the wintertime. So my mom and dad are there about seven rows up to my left by the face-off dot. My dad's best friend, who he grew up with, who doesn't believe anybody's any good. <laughs> I'm just saying that because my dad would tell me, and I know this guy very, very well. Really good friend of the family's. And my sister, who's never seen me play. Oh. Really never seen me play, right? So I played the game and I got first star. I beat Tampa 5-2. Wayne got second star. And yeah, so this is a you know scenario. My mom and dad are sitting there and they're watching me play my second NHL game, right? So now I know I'm feeling I belong, you know, and the feeling when I'm walking back to the dressing room because I got the puck, because guess who was at the other end? Wendell Young. We are both from Dartmouth, Nova Scotia. Wendell was a guy that played, he's three years younger than me. So he would watch me play tier two. And Wendell went on to play in the NHL, Pittsburgh, Vancouver, yep. right? So he he jumped in and didn't get that minor league stigma, which a lot of guys get. I had it Yep. at 20, 26. Why haven't you made it, right? So I'm walking back to the dressing room and my whole career is going through my mind as I'm walking through. And I get back to the dressing room and I'm in tears almost. And Barry Merrows comes up to me and says, what's wrong? You know, what's going on? I said, hey, come on, these are tears of joy, man. This is built up, not frustration or whatever, but it was just that. And then I did what I did. In front of your dad? And in front of my and dad. And my mom, yeah. I come outside and there's hordes of people. Like I, I get interviewed like crazy. They had to wait out there for about an hour and a half. So I go out there. My sister jumps at me and hugs me. I never hugged my sister in my life. <laughs> you know, we weren't that, you know, we're not a touchy-feely yes. family like some yeah. aren't, but, you know, we're all. You got me, you got me we well enough over other. here. You got me well enough here. This might be well, the first time I cry on a podcast. It is. It, it has me that way because I think about it, right? And, and that's that was for my dad, really. It was so much for my dad. And, and that's, and get to play in the NHL and feeling that way that, you know, this is the league that I watched religiously. And here's another good story that really hit home with me. Ken Dryden said the same thing. He couldn't believe that now he's playing in that box that he used to watch all these guys. And that's what stuck in my head for such a long time, maybe not consciously, but subconsciously. How can I be that small kid from an Air Force base to get inside and people could be watching me on TV? Crazy. Ken, Ken Dryden saying that. Like, it's funny that Kenny Holland, here's another connection of a story with Kenny Holland and me. When I retired, guess what I did for about two months? <laughs> Electrolux vacuum cleaner salesman. Seriously. That's what Kenny did. That's Same what Kenny thing. did. Yeah. Kenny was 29. I was 28. We were just doing it because whatever we wanted to do was just someone, a friend of mine had a company. And say, hey, would you like to help me out and do some demonstrations for me? And you know, I'll pay you, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I did that for two months until I got to Peoria on the trade deadline that same year. 
And Kenny was telling that story the other day, and I went, no way. He had just retired, figuring out what he wants to do. And his mother pushed him to the Electrolux salesman because she knew someone there, I guess. Oh my Unreal, God. like stories that we have in this business of hockey, if you're around long enough, right? And I've been around, <laughs> play with about a thousand players. You know, I've never had a job in my life, really, right? And that was not going to be my job. And Kenny knew it too. He said, that's not going to be my career. But it's funny, like people look at him, vacuum cleaner salesman. Because the stigma, okay, door to door, right? Encyclopedia salesman, door to door, right? Oh my God. There's kids now that don't even know what an encyclopedia is. They no. just look it up online. Listen, no. yeah. I would, I like, that is the perfect place to wrap up. We've been talking for over an hour. Wow. I think we just have to hold and maybe do a second part two one of these days where we go over life as a scout and get into yes. that. But I don't want to stop this interview as much as this would be the perfect, you know, I'm basically rubbing tears out of my eyes here. Um, I do want to give you a chance to talk. I want to talk about Team 33 and what you've got going there. So I want to make sure we include that in this. Um, just walk me through it. And, and, and okay. to be honest, this is a great jumping. We can, we can get into the scouting another time. We'll, we, this, is, this has been so good. Part of, I got to be honest with you, like among the, all the things you've done, including vacuum sales, uh, <laughs> There is <laughs> well, okay, attempted vacuum sales. Right? Yeah. Yeah. There is probably a story at each stop here. Like honestly, you should have your own podcast just to tell stories about your career because there's been about 30 different ones here that have takeaways that well, kids, I, kids should. I was asked, I was asked to write a book. And I actually sat down with a lady in Los Angeles to write a book many, you many should. years ago. Well, my brother says this too, right? He he's the guy that keeps a journal on my career, right? He does that stuff. But anyway, we'll we'll digress to another time. But Steel or um, Team Thirty Three, for me, um, is a pro scouting um, company that me and Mike Santos, who was uh, my assistant general manager in Nashville when I when I was there, and he came up with this platform, so to speak, as an assistant GM and looking for easier, better ways to evaluate players, put now money to players, and doing more just than analytics. You know, and he's not an analytics guy, more algorithms and things like that. So I said, well, Mike, I know all the players. I said, you're going to need data. You're going to need to be able to put all the players in the rankings and ratings and where they fit in categories and all that. And he said, let me do that. I'll watch the games for what, a year and a half here, and we'll set the company up. And that's what we've done. And we now presented it to as many NHL teams as we can. Um, we're not replacing any scouting uh, staff. Okay, so we're another tool like central scouting is for the amateur side, which is very list orientated. It is not game reports. You can't see anything. You can't ask any scout. We have 12 scouts in our, on our staff, all some Hall of Famers. <laughs> we got Pete Mahovlich as our, our, our guy that was Mike, who was a figurehead. They worked together in Florida. Uh, he's got a lot of connections. Um, so we do game reports. We're like any staff. As you see me at the games, I do yeah. the game reports. We, I hooked up with RinkNet because we were the first team in Nashville to hook up with Jim Price. So we hooked up with RinkNet. I said, okay, Mike, let me partner up with RinkNet. So now we have a software and we can do that because all the teams know RinkNet right? because they use it. And so that's what we're doing right now. Anaheim and Montreal uses our system. Um, we see some trades that they've made, a lot of them, and we put a lot of value, meaning number value on draft picks. Like, for instance, if a draft pick is a first-round pick, I got it up right now, actually. 
I think it's valued, yeah, 377 points. Okay, so everything is out of 1,000. So how we did this was 32 teams. Mike asked me how many teams, how many on each team are prospects that are actually NHL guys in their whole realm of things. And I said probably about 33. And he said, I think about the same. 21 NHL, five or six America League, seven or whatever, and down the list, your prospects and whatever. So you multiply the 32 teams by 33, we come so up with 1,000. So you're quantifying. So you're, quanti- yep, you're quantifying. You're quantifying value and assessing value through scouting mechanisms, not analytics in terms of nope. like just straight numbers, like, you know, Hockey shooting sense, percentage and things play, like that. that. And, and it's really not even so much of, yeah, like you were saying, like we could go analyze the parallels on, you know, we said, okay, let's take 10 categories out of 100, right? What's that get you? 1,000. So we kind of kept it together, right? And we did it coordinating with a seven-round amateur side, putting it over to where each round would quantify a number. Like the first rounders are valued at about 377, right? As they go along, they're going to develop one way or the other, better or worse, right? right? So if you can imagine, in my mind, every number that Connor McDavid is the number that's the highest. He would be about 970. No perfect player, but 10 categories. What does he rate? And then you go from there. And so this is what we have. And NHL teams can look at that and, and, and combine the draft pick value with the prospect value, with the player value, and it all is in synergy. And of course, they have their own notes on these players. They have their own analysis, and they can, yep. they can compare what their scouts say to what your scouts say, and maybe it matches perfectly, and it's a, a reassurance of how they're approaching things and sort of um, yep. becomes a rubber stamp or maybe you see something they didn't and they double check. So it sounds like there's a lot of value there. Just an extra set of eyes and a lot more than one set of eyes and quantified in a way that they can assess it differently. Yeah, we've got a lot. We've got more scouts than they do. Right. They've got probably four pro scouts per team in general around yeah. there. We got 12 to 14. We have more eyes on players, more viewings. And we know that sometimes scouts or GMs will ask their scouts and they'll have a discrepancy, right? So where does he go? We're a third-party, unbiased opinion. That's the key thing, unbiased. We have no stake in it. We have no skin in the game. I've been a scout on teams where I latch on and keep my players and love them till the end of time. And sometimes I should let it go. They have developed in a bad way or a different way. Don't keep hanging on to something that's really not factual and true to what's going on right now. Right. That's perfect. That's a per. There you go. Let it go. Much like your career. Once you did, it took off up to the national <laughs> hockey league. It'll let go of some of those things as a scout too. a perfect yep. synergy, a perfect way for us to wrap up. Rick, I promise there's a part two because I enjoyed this so much. And I know our audience is going to, I can't believe that after all these years of just shooting the crap with you in the press box and hearing all these amazing stories, it took me this long to bring you on. I apologize for that. I promise it won't be that long before part two, my friend. You're busy. You're busy, man. I know you are, Kevin. And like I said, I don't hold it against you at all. I, I'm, I'm, I'm really, I don't go solicit these things, right? I, I'm pretty private as a person that my small town values come out of me, but I really enjoy these things. And I've been asked to do them. You I should. can't get off them. <laughs> you should. Well, this is, we'll talk next time okay. at the rig. This is the problem. Awesome. We have such a good conversations that I just, it's so organic and natural that I never thought, hey, like the rest of the world needs to hear these stories. My brain just didn't go there because I was always 
just right. kind of engage in the moment with you. And I think that's what's going to make this so good. I was the last hour and 10 minutes I've been engaged in the moment with you and our audience <laughs> will be too. Thanks, Rick. We'll see you. We'll see you at the ring soon, my friend. Awesome. Thanks, Kevin. Did you forget we were even here? That that Hutch and I were still around because you got so captivated by the stories and the conversation between Rick and Woody. It just makes the entire world uh, disappear. Now, Rick, Rick and I have, we go back way to the Brandon days, uh, way, way, way back. We've been buddies forever. I got to be honest, and, and I'd say this to Rick. Sometimes I think that I'm too close to the fire, that, uh, that the stories I hear are funny and stuff, but I don't know whether it's bigger picture. Hearing Woody talk about this in such glowing terms uh, makes me feel bad that we haven't uh, had Rick on before and just gives credit to what an amazing journey that he's had. It's, it's incredible. And like I said, it really is story time with Rick Knickle. It should be its own podcast. We could do little segments, just little snippets, 15 minutes at a time of different stories from different areas. I'm sure there, as he said, there are many more, some which can't be told on our family-friendly podcast. Um, but there are lessons in there uh, and a great lesson for head coaches. Like Mike Keenan and his constantly pulling him just destroyed the confidence of a guy who went into that season with a ton of it. So if you're doing it just for the sake of doing it and you're not explaining it, coaches, just think of what that could do to a young kid. Um, you know, Hutch, you, you talked about and Rick talked about uh, not failing when he was younger, like just having nothing but success. That can be a problem too. Uh, there were just, there were so many lessons in there um, even through the stories, you know, like I said, some of them were how not to, you know, we know now that you shouldn't be looking over your shoulder to see what scouts are in the building, right? We know that we, we have sports psychologists that give us specific methods to prevent us from focusing on the wrong things. Right. But that didn't exist back then. And I just, you know, the other part where he just, he just decided to let it go and go have fun. And that's when his career finally started arcing up right up to the national hockey league. Like that's not a coincidence. Right, that's not a coincidence. So, uh, within the great stories are some great lessons as well that I think every every goalie, whether you're in beer league or a parent with a young goaltender, can can take something away from that message. A Woody of yeah, as soon as he started to just have fun and relax, I think that's so important. But that bit where he said he just found things way too easy all along the way. He never played for a team that wasn't dominant right right up through the Western Hockey League, and if you don't learn how to lose early. What happens when you hit that first roadblock? So I think that's a good message for parents on, on both sides. Don't always go searching for that team that's going to be dominant. Try and get your kid on that team that just wins, 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 because they're not getting the lessons they need. Uh, at the same time, if you're in a tough situation, just realize it's making you a better goaltender. Tough it out. Tough it out. And learning to lose and learning to struggle is so important as a goaltender. And I just love uh, Rick's message and, and where that came through. The other one that stood out for me, it's a little quote I'd love to just put on my wall. I don't know if you, you heard it. Availability is the best ability. I thought that was such a great line. And making yourself available to teams who need a little bit of help is so important. And you can do that as a young goaltender as well. You know, I've heard of uh, players even around here who've been invited to go out and play with a junior team and they're like, ah, oh, the practice is late or I've got school in the morning or I got to work on this availability is the best ability help out a team if they know that you're around they're going to keep calling so well having school in the morning is not a bad excuse <laughs> that one jumped out at me for a nine i've heard it for a 9 p.m practice i mean 
come on. You, you, you'll be fine. I need I my still use sleep. it now. You better keep sleeping. I you? think I should. Uh, <laughs> I think I think Take a longer nap. Availability is the best ability. I'm going to put it up on the wall. See how my wife reacts. Because I got to say, in a total aside, since the pandemic, the shortage of beer league goaltenders, I could play every night of the week if I wanted to, or if I thought I could still stay married if I did. Like, it is unreal. Um, so, yes, availability is the best ability. Hun, it's important to my career. I'm going out to play for the sixth straight night tonight. Yes, it's a random team you've never heard of. Somebody I met once six years ago, but they need help, and I've got to do it. If you're not there, they won't call next time, Woody. Uh, you'll be boring more than underwear from them, like the couch, if, if you keep doing that. Okay, if, I if it's a late enough you. start, I could just find a spot on the bench in the locker room after there and spend the night. Ever had a nap in a rink? Oh, 100%. In a rink room? 100%. Not the best naps, yeah. but you, goalie gear can provide good cushioning. Yeah, but, but you fall asleep fast. Those lights come down. It's, just, it's, it's, it's perfect. Uh, I, had that happen, I had that happen to me one time. I just laid down, closed my eyes, needed a little rest between sessions. And, of course, they've got those automatic lights in most dressing yeah. rooms now. And I woke up. And the lights were off, and I was so disoriented. What has happened? Then it came to me. You're back. Gotta love those. Well, wow. I mean, it's it's it depends on whether you. Are, the question here is, did you fall asleep or did you pass out? Because it's called beer league <laughs> hockey for a reason. <laughs> no, I fell asleep, Woody. That was during the day, a hard working day. But I hear you, buddy. Well, then the can rolled across the room and illuminated the automatic lights, and he he knew exactly <laughs> where he was. It was it was perfect day. What's going on over at the, the website? Ah, we got a fresh drill up uh, from, and it's a good one. Nice, simple one. It's called the one-two drill uh, with the San Jose Sharks. Thomas Spear walks us through it, uh, featuring both uh, James Reimer and Capo Kakinen. Just a quick little, like, shooter on either side. Walks us through the explanations. Beat it on your feet using shuffles. Uh, key to sort of triggering it with a head-down mentality and build that rotation and, and not sliding. Beat it on your skates. That's a good drill. Um, don't forget, folks. We have, actually, this might be the first podcast since we put it up, uh, the double dip on recoil with Linus Allmark. We probably should have mentioned this earlier in the podcast because I've actually had NHL goalie coaches reach out and, and uh, touch base about maybe, hey, uh, can I get a subscription? I want to read that article. Um, the idea that uh, recoil, drift, a little bit of purposeful back, backwards drift, and everyone's like, well, no big deal. I've had people reach out like, what's the deal? Goalies have always flowed backwards on me. Yeah, off the rush but not necessarily on end zone play. And so the idea that Essenza teaches and has taught through Tim Thomas, through Tuka Rask, and now Jeremy Swayman, and obviously Linus Almark. We heard a little bit from Brandon Boosie last week trying to make that adjustment. Bussy, pardon me. Um, you know, the idea of setting and square, but once, once you square, you don't stay set. You don't hold edges. You don't stay in one spot. You get just a little ever so slight backwards flow is that shots coming or is that guy's loading up that shot and how it buys you a little more time as long as you keep your hands active to see the puck before you make a save and if it gets passed instead you're already flowing backwards so it's an easier push as Essenza told me he's not a physics major but bodies in motion tend to stay in motion or in a world where so much offense is created by throwing junk across the crease having it hit leg sticks and deflect everywhere broken plays we call them again you're moving in the right direction. That recovery is easier. Uh, we got a whole article dedicated to it. Linus did his pro reads with us. I focused on one of the pro reads where there was a little bit of that element to it um, so that we had a visual example of him talking 
uh, about an example over video. Uh, it's a fascinating, I'll be honest with you, it was written about earlier this season. We're not the first to it. Uh, I think it was in the Boston Globe and the reporter reached out to me and I hadn't had a chance to really watch a ton of film because life was busy. And I saw the quotes and I assumed that we were talking about momentum builds. You know, like, you know, a little bit of, I think the, the guys over at Stop It will call it a J-hook. Like you're in the butterfly and you use, instead of a, like a reverse C cut, cut from your knees where you use that lead skate to generate momentum before. I didn't think we were talking about purposely drifting backwards off the shot because I didn't think anyone did it. And maybe that's my ignorance. I always thought that set and square was this foundational part of goaltending. And here we have one of the best guys, the best guy in the league right now, um, statistically by clear sight in Linus Allmark, drifting backwards on purpose and talking about how buying into that this year for, after resisting it a little bit last year has been a, a big part, not the only part, because Linus has always had a ton of talent but a big part of what's going to be, I believe, a Vesna Trophy winning season. And so um, it's a fascinating article. The fact it's accompanied by a pro reads to match it, uh, I would highly recommend checking it out at ingolmag.com. Probably something, like I said, we should have teased an hour and a half ago. Evolution, right? Never stops. Even when you think, what is happening there? And you do a little bit of investigation, there's a part of it that that sort of takes it to a next level it's the perfect example of why i love this position because there are no absolutes even on something that i thought was an absolute i thought set and square was an absolute in goaltending on in certain situations and lena's first one to say like this isn't an every situation thing um but in the right situations it certainly helped them and this is this is why we love the position. There's no one way to do it. There's always new things. Um, eyes always being opened. And I love that at end goal, we get to be a vehicle to share that with the world. And it does not happen unless guys like Bob Asenza and Linus Allmark are open to helping other goalies. Linus, uh, after our pro read, said this is him giving back. That's what he told me. He sees this as giving back to the goalie community as a whole. Bob Asenza, when I said, hey, like, like I, I don't want to give too much away here. Are you okay to share? said, the goalie world has done so much for me. Of course, I'm happy to share this um, and walked us through the specifics. And you can be walked through the specifics of it, too, with a subscription to ingoalmag.com. You can check that article out right now. Another buddy of mine, uh, the great John Shannon, a television producer extraordinaire in Canada, has a book out. It's called uh, Evolve or Die is the subtitle of it, which is sort of uh, the the path that we take to goaltending you gotta evolve or else you're going to be left behind now it's i don't think it's as good as availability is the best ability but uh, it's it's makes a lot of sense they, they, they're they're both tracking in the right direction 100 percent. that would be a good title for a goalie book right about now for sure hutch that's what you do you evolve every week you continue to bring us different angles to it biggest fan right here can you sign mm -hmm. my yearbook Oh, dude, I'm I'm gonna put that somewhere on on the website under testimonials. <laughs> Will you uh, sign my yearbook? Thanks to Rick and Nickel uh, for stopping by, and not the last time that you will hear from him, uh, and unless, of course, uh, the uh, the idea of him starting his own podcast with Woody comes about, and then you'll have to check that one out uh, over uh, on a different uh, different platform or a uh, a simultaneous platform parallel platform uh, with Ingle Radio the podcast uh, appreciate it uh, cam i'm with you every step of the way uh, thanks to the folks over at the hockey shop source for sports langley the hockey shop.com and sensarena sensarena br we'll talk to you next week
on In Radio, the podcast. 